I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom High Speed Bionic. <laughs> well, we've got a tremendous guest this week. I found I'm it not, inspiring. I know I say that much, but we have a very distinguished guest. But we also don't have a lot of time. Well, this week we have uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, who is a retired uh, Army colonel and professor uh, and former chief of staff of Secretary of State Colin Powell. Uh, talking about an insider's eyewitness view of America's descent into military totalitarianism. And this gentleman was in Ground Zero, the bullseye, uh, surrounding the Iraq War and the decision to go in. And what he will tell you, if you've not heard him, will shock you. And it's a real honor for us to have him on the show. So what do you say we go right into it? Let's get right into it. Okay. Here is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, and we'll be right back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Not going to fall asleep. Really excited for this interview. Bionic. Wonderful. <laughs> and that makes three of us, hopefully, yeah. and four, including Pyro, here in the studio. Ladies and gentlemen, um, we often say that we have some tremendous guests that join us for a given week on Future Quake. But we really mean it this week. We have a very distinguished gentleman uh, who has a uh, credentials, background, experiences, that I believe all of you, even new listeners to Future Quake, will greatly respect and admire. Uh, and because of that, I want you to hear the very challenging words that he has to say for all of us. Uh, this week we have joining with us uh, Mr. Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, who is a retired colonel in the U.S. Air Force and currently a professor, uh, and most importantly, the former chief of staff of Secretary of State Colin Powell. And we're going to be talking this week about an insider's eyewitness view of America's descent into military totalitarianism. And P Professor Wilkerson, uh, I tell you, it's an honor to have you as our guest on the Future Quake radio show. Well, I'm happy I could be with you. You have so many hats, I'm not quite sure uh, how I should refer to you. Do you prefer Professor Wilkerson, Colonel Wilkerson? Um, what, what do you, you take, prefer? You take your pick or alternate between the two. I'll answer to either. Okay. Great. All right. Well, you uh, you have the distinction that you can carry a lot of hats on there. So uh, I uh, you, you just let me know if you'd prefer refer in a different way. Um, our audience here on Future Quakes, since this is your first visit here, is a very intelligent, well-read, and discerning bunch in spite of us uh, that will appreciate the information that you're going to share with us today. And uh, I, I mentioned a little bit about your background. Uh, based upon the various excerpts I've read about you, I understand that you served in the U.S. Army. Uh, you included uh, serving as a helicopter pilot in the Vietnam War uh, and as an instructor at the Naval War College and deputy director of the Marine Corps War College and eventually retiring at the rank of colonel and currently serving as a professor at multiple institutions right now. Uh, most importantly, I understand you served as an assistant to Colin Powell at the U.S. Army Forces Command, and you continued on in this role as he became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then his role as Secretary of State. Uh, could you clarify any information if I got it wrong, and also uh, please uh, fill in the dots of any other pertinent details about your experiences that our audience should know about to appreciate what you're going to share with us today? Well, you got only one thing wrong, and I have to I have to correct it because otherwise my army colleagues out there would be furious with me. Okay. Uh, you said Air Force, that I'm Army. 
Did I say Air Force? <laughs> you know, that's a Freudian slip. I, having worked at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for 16 years. I, My I read, son's in the Air Force, though, so I, I can claim that. I read Army, and uh, I don't know. I just Air Force came out. I guess that just reveals my my biases. My son is- my son, as a matter of fact, is uh, now with the Tennessee Air National Guard, having gotten out of the active Air Force, and is there at Nashville. Oh, is that right? Wow. Well, the, the, irony, the irony, I've been spending most of the last year or two at the Aberdeen Proving Ground, uh, testing some of my inventions for protecting armored vehicles. Well, so, good for you. the shoe's on the other, on the other foot here. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Proceed, Professor. You know, the, o- the only thing I would add to that is what I've been doing for the past five years, um, which is an amplification of what I started doing um, at the United States Naval War College and then began and continued doing at the Marine Corps War College, and that is uh, studying what I call fateful decision-making. Fateful de- decision-making in terms of our republic is defined as those times when a president makes a choice to send young men and young women to die for state purposes and something we forget often to kill other people for state purposes. Mm-hmm. In other words, war. Um, at least that's the public face of it. The not-so-public face of it is clandestine operations where principally the CIA leads a few young men and young women uh, to sometimes kill people for state purposes and does it in almost total uh, secretiveness. In many cases, the American people don't know anything about it until 20 or 30 years later. And therefore, there's very little accountability that applies to these kinds of operations. I've studied those now uh, quite extensively, and I teach what I call presidential decision-making. But I focus on these fateful decisions because I feel that whether it's Eisenhower or Truman or Kennedy or Nixon or Reagan or Carter or Clinton or Bush one or two, these decisions reveal the most about the character of our leadership and increasingly about the character of our republic. Okay. Well, diving into the content of our uh, discussion today, as you well know, most, but certainly not all, evangelicals have been closely aligned to the Republican Party for at least a generation uh, and see them as upholding Judeo-Christian values and morals. Uh, And as I've told my listeners in my past, for example, was as a prototypical evangelical. I voted for Bush twice and supported the conduct of the Iraq War, uh, based upon what I understood, and the principal players that were involved in conducting it right up until recent years. Uh, I have read that you have been a longstanding supporter of the Republican Party yourself. Has the party leadership and their elected officials departed from what we understood as those guiding principles, if they ever did follow them? And if so, how? I think that's an excellent question. It's one I... I ponder myself almost on a daily basis. I've been a Republican for 40 years. My father, who passed away two years ago at the ripe age of 92, was a Republican his entire life. Um, And so I have been, in the last few years in particular, stunned at what I call not the transformation but the transmogrification of my party, the Republican Party. I find it difficult today to find anyone other than a few um, sort of iconoclastic or even uh, radical in terms of the party as a whole members. I I would cite people like Chuck Hagel, who, who of course now is out of the Senate, people like Kit Bond from Missouri, who's getting ready to leave, George 
Boyanovich from Ohio, who is also leaving, much to my chagrin, who are what I call my daddy's Republicans, mm-hmm. uh, people who are genuinely conservative, who wish to keep things that are sound and culturally and politically sound intact, wish to keep institutions from changing too fast and so forth, uh, believe that the founders or founding fathers are right about a lot of what they said when they formed us in the first place, and want to preserve as much as that as possible, even as we grow and become quite different from what the founders uh, knew in the beginning. That's a true conservative. What I see in the Republican Party today leading the way are people like Rush Limbaugh, um, people like Richard Pearl, um, who incidentally is a converted Democrat. Um, I don't see the kind of person my father saw, my father voted for, or that I saw and voted for earlier on. I said the other day to this uh, similar question that my state of South Carolina now seems to be populated by demented people. Uh, pardon the pun there. One of them is dement. Um, my state of South <laughs> Carolina, from its governor to its representatives, can't seem to find their bearings on anything but vituperativeness, uh, hate, uh, a passionate disregard for what the founders thought was the essence of this republic, which is compromise. Um, my state of South Carolina embarrasses me today with the people who are representing uh, it in the Congress, in the House, and the Senate, for the most part. And they're Republicans for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't recognize the Republican Party anymore. You know, it seems like to me the names of the people you mentioned are those who I associate as not having an ideological agenda, particularly one that extends be around the world, uh, beyond, you know, maintaining good governance in our own country. Uh, do they have some roots? And I know this would go bef- long ago in the Republican Party, but in, in the more modern area to more of a Goldwater Republican type influence. Well, you know, there there seem to me to be as I go over the hill to discuss various issues. Um, I, I'm working hard right now on trying to uh, at least move towards better relations with Cuba. So I've recently spent a lot of time on the hill with both Republicans and Democrats. Hmm. I, I seem to detect three parts of the of the Republican Party. Uh, that part which is extreme and on the right with regard to domestic issues, that part which is extreme and on the right with regard to international issues, and sometimes these people are coincidental in their views and sometimes they're opposed to one another right. in their views. Um, and then I see the people, as, uh, as I just mentioned, Boyanovich and, and Bond and, and mm-hmm. Hagel being representative, who are more or less what I call traditional Republicans. They're internationalists. They believe in the things that we've done in the world uh, since 1945, for example. They believe in the international institutions we've created, including the United Nations. They believe in certain challenges being global in nature and having to be met by concerts of power and not by unilateral action. They don't believe in war except as a last resort, a very last resort. And most importantly, they believe in physical responsibility. Um, that's another thing that troubles me about my party now. They've become the most profligate, physically irresponsible party, perhaps in the history of the public. Hmm. George W. Bush spent more money for less uh, purposes that I can see were in the interest of the nation and created more government, big government, homeland security, for example, dwarfs any other cabinet department 
than any president since uh, the 1945s when we created the Pentagon and so forth and so on. So what is my party doing now? It's being physically irresponsible. It says it's not in favor of big government, but participates in the largest expansion of government in history since 1945. And it seems like it has a penchant for spending irresponsibly that simply is unsustainable and won't stop. So, as I said, I simply do not recognize my party anymore. It's funny you mentioned your state, South Carolina, because I believe yesterday, I think Lindsey Graham had some kind of town hall meeting, and some people were asking him about some of the bailouts of the bankers and things like that, and he quickly changed the subject and didn't respond to this as far as the financial issues. Which I don't blame him because they're so complicit in these things that um, you know when 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 we had the the real collapse of the housing market, the first blush of it, if you will, and and Paulson, uh, then Secretary of the Treasury, was putting forth this seven hundred billion dollar tarp and so forth. I marveled at people in both in both parties, Barney Frank, for example, example Chuck Schumer in the Democratic Party on the on the other side, Mitch McConnell and a host of Republicans. Mm-hmm who suddenly voiced indignation, well, I'm sorry. They have been instrumental in deregulating the banking Mm -hmm. industry and the financial investment industry for the past 10, 15 years, and they are just as responsible as the American people or the national leadership. (laughs) And yet here they are haranguing the -hmm. White House for doing what it was doing. I mean, they're all guilty. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, having established in our discussion your, your Republican credentials, your... Uh, a veteran who served in combat, and you spent your lifetime and career in supporting the uh, our fighting men and women and our in our military in the field. Uh, I, I want to proceed into some more difficult topics here. You were in the middle of the process of, as I say, selling the Iraq War by being tasked with briefly reviewing the CIA intelligence data, and then preparing a presentation for Colin Powell to give to the United Nations as I understand, in February 2003, to provide justification for military action uh, based upon intelligence-based suspicions of the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You later said this data supplied to you uh, with other data that contradicted uh, this uh, pro-WMD position was was kept from you, as I understand it. Uh, you said that the that the that this data and the purpose of the war itself was based upon a lie. And I saw a quote of yours that said, uh, I participated in a hoax on the American people, the international community, and the U.N. Security Council. Can you elaborate on why you believe that? That was the, I I continue to insist to myself, to my wife, and and to anyone who listened, that that was the lowest point in my professional and my personal life. Um, I walked outside the U.N. that cold February morning, walked away from the U.N. down the street there in New York, and I, I essentially wrote in my mind and then later typed out on a typewriter or word processor my resignation. And I put it in my center drawer uh, back at the State Department, took it out every week and looked at it and was a coward and didn't submit it. Um, if I made a mistake in my life that was singular and substantive, it was that I did not submit that resignation. Um, and, and what I did, I said I did. That information that we presented at the U.N., Unknown to Colin Powell or to me at the time that we we were presenting it was simply not correct in at least three of its major pillars. Uh, An active biological weapons program, an active chemical weapons program, and most uh, hauntingly, 
an active nuclear program. None of that was true. All of that was a hoax, and I am convinced, convinced after doing years of research, four years now since I left the State Department, that some people in the United States government, and particularly in the vice president's office, knew the depth and the profundity of that hoax, and yet perpetrated it anyway. Not everyone did. Certainly the Secretary of State didn't. I don't think Dr. Rice did, who was then National Security Advisor. But I am convinced that there were people in the Defense Department, there were people in the CIA, there were people in the Vice President's Office, in fact it was orchestrated from the Vice President's Office, who knew the extent of what they were doing, and in Carl Rose's inestimable and, and very descriptive words, uh, did it anyway. We are an empire now, and when we do something, it becomes reality. So, Holy cow. It, it, so I want to make sure our listeners understand, you were at ground zero of knowing what really happened to get us into the war in Iraq, which is... I was, I was at Langley with my team day and night for six days. I then flew to New York and repeated the process on the top floor of the U.S.-U.N. Mission Building in New York for a couple of days with the Secretary, with the Director of Central Intelligence, George Tennant, with his deputy, John McLaughlin, and with the principal analysts for WMD and the CIA and the, on the National Intelligence Council, working directly for the DCI, not the director of the CIA, though it's the same, was at that time the same person. And I can tell you that they, I'm convinced, that there were people in that room who were lying to the Secretary of State and to me, convinced of it. Okay, so th this this was regarding a war that's taken thousands of our troops' lives, maimed, maimed many more. Yeah, depending on whom you listen to, uh, even the DOD now says 100,000 Iraqis have died. Uh, others have said, and I believe the figures much higher. Um, Johns Hopkins did a survey in Iraq, and they believe it was somewhere between three and 600,000 who have died. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we've put three or four million into a diaspora that doesn't seem to be coming back to Iraq either. Many of them are in Jordan and Syria and, and, and destabilizing those countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's ruined our reputation around the world. Uh, the goodwill that we had after the 9-1-1 event has to a large extent evaporated. Um, the goal. That was an incredible moment of solidarity. Um, right. uh, as, as the French newspaper said, we're all Americans now. Mm -hmm. um, it was a moment of solidarity that we could have we could have capitalized on and probably still be working with to solve some of these global challenges that we confront now, uh, not the least of which is nuclear proliferation. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we we stuck our fingers into that euphoric bubble and burst it before even reality said it should be bursted. Mm -hmm. I mean, how long are you going to keep a concert of nations feeling good about one another when you're pursuing things like conflict and terrorists and so forth? But we did it right away. We mm -hmm. essentially said, we're going to do this by ourselves. If anybody wants to go on, that's fine. Uh, but we don't need any of you. And then we went about the global war on terror. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll we'll come back to this, but this was a deception not only uh, to you and to Secretary Powell, but to the American public itself. And our evangelical audience is listening was consistently supportive of the president uh, of the case they made. They went and helped sell it to the American people. 
Christian Media did a large job selling it to their uh, followers in Christian Media about the need for this, the fact that if we go in there, it'll be a dagger in the heart of terrorism. We'll be able to start the seed of terrorism that's in Iraq and to uh, uh, go on for that. Um, and what we have actually done is quite the converse. What we have actually done is given Osama bin Laden and Aman al-Zawahiri, who's his brain trust, his real strategic thinker, almost everything they wanted. We have put American troops in harm's way on Arab soil, and we have created a jihad atmosphere amongst countries whose populations are 40 and 50 percent young people, many of whom are young men who are unemployed, who are very susceptible to this sort of jihadist ideology, and who now have every reason in the world to hate us because we are, in bin Laden's own world, despoiling the holy sites of Islam. Mm -hmm. um, and we are there, and this is another thing I've come to a conclu the conclusion of after much research. I think Paul Wolfowitz, who was then Deputy Secretary of, Sen of, of Defense, let it slip a couple of times, once in a Vanity Fair interview, uh, I believe that was 2002, and then once in 2003 in Singapore when he was answering a question from the audience, why aren't you going after North Korea? They have a nuclear weapon instead of going after Iraq when they mm -hmm. might have a nuclear weapon. And his answer was, well, Iraq swims on a sea of oil. It is, is my very considered opinion now that what we really went to Iraq for was what so many people were saying at the time because they intuitively, instinctively felt it, and that's oil. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, Cheney wanted to stabilize oil prices at a level that was conducive to the current economic structure in America and didn't want anybody like OPEC or Putin or anybody else to be able to influence that in a significant way. So he figured if he was sitting on top of the second largest known oil reserves in the world, in Iraq, then that gave him that kind of uh, sway. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the man I knew as Secretary of Defense, the man who was Colin Powell's boss when he was Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Richard Bruce Cheney, was not going to Iraq for the reasons he said he was going to Iraq. The reason he was going to Iraq was to influence the oil markets and to ultimately sit on top of that oil. And you're saying um, this is a fellow, come, a fellow that Republican. That hasn't come about either. Right. We're, we're, we're sitting here now looking at an Iraqi government that may or may not vote on an oil revenue-sharing proposal. So far it hasn't been able to because it's too difficult to do. Um, when it does, it's probably going to alienate the Kurds and start the civil war all over again. Um, and on top of that, most of the contracts that are being let for the oil that is being pumped in Iraq now are not going to companies that I would say give us leverage. Right. Um, so even if even if that was Cheney's strategic purpose, it now stands uh, failed. So it didn't work as good then as... Uh when they did the same thing Iran in the 1950s when they overthrew their exactly. secular government and the British and the Americans went and did terrorist acts on Iranian soil. Uh, in fact, if you're a historian, war. as you're saying, if you want to really dig in the dirt, in the dirt of Saudi Arabia, the dirt of Iran, Persia, the dirt of Iraq, you're going to find that black gold. That's what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's been another collateral benefit, though, is that there are some parties who benefit when activities are taken to expand war and to Absolutely. stretch out war over a long time. There, there are money and dollars to be made in selling weapons systems, 
other opportunities, even private contractors uh, providing security and things like this. Uh, when you do things that not only stretch out a war but also expand it to other theaters like Yemen or other places like this, um, Listen there can be a method to the madness. Listening to the two of you guys talk, it's like Smedley Butler all over again, but <laughs> just with, you know, better weapons. Oh, it's much more sophisticated now. Uh, yeah. Eisenhower's 1961 warning about the military-industrial complex was not only prescient. I think, I think we've taken it an order of magnitude past his suspicions. Hmm. Um, Eisenhower would never have dreamed, for example, that my army, your army, your Marine Corps would be getting around congressional in-strength limits on its total strength mm -hmm. on an annual basis by doubling the size of its forces through private contractors, mm -hmm. because that's what they've done. The private contractors in Afghanistan right now outnumber the number of U.S. troops. Mm -hmm. Iraq is not much different. They doubled battlefield strength by doing that. And incidentally, when you do that, you also give the executive branch the war power in a, with a great deal more facility than if the troops were just there. Because you couldn't fight Afghanistan and Iraq simultaneously if you didn't have those 200,000-plus contractors. Mm -hmm. well, so yeah. you would, right. you've just given the executive branch another uh, reason, another way, another uh, depth of flexibility, if you will, to wage war. Well, and it even gets more specific than that, if I understand right. I, I've seen credible reports that there were groups of these private contractors that responded directly to Mr. Cheney himself to perform assassinations and other kind of things that could be around the law, uh, and they appear to be credible to me. That's come out in the last few I, months. I think, I've, I, I think I discovered, uh, I think I have discovered, and, it, and it's going to be in my book if I can document it adequately, um, that Cheney was actually cutting the Special Operations Command commander, the four-star in Tampa. Um, he and Rumsfeld were actually cutting that guy out, and they were going straight into JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, and they were actually directing Special Operations forces in clandestine operations across the globe, mostly Delta and SEAL Team 6, from the vice president's office through the JSOC commander. And incidentally, the JSOC commander at that time was General Stanley McChrystal. Mm. Wow. Well, you know, you, you won't hear a lot of condemnation from from even sometimes uh, uh, these Christian media groups because groups like the, uh, the head of Blackwater is one of the major funders of some of the major uh, Christian groups like Focus on the Family and things like this. So mm -hmm. uh, we have special issues that we have to deal with in the, the family of faith uh, on these issues. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, no friend to the Jacobins. I mean, neocons bionic. <laughs> Very good call there. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Wilkerson um, is a captivating speaker. Mm -hmm. He speaks from authority, and he has more to say this week. But someone else who has something to say is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. 
Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it. Sorry, we got a little time. we got to get out of here. Come back tomorrow for the next segment. You don't want to miss this week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, no friend to the Jacobins today either, Bionic. I'm glad today you're not. Yeah. Uh, this is our second installment this week with our very prestigious guest, retired Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, who is also a professor and the former Chief of Staff to Secretary, Secretary of State Colin Powell, talking about an insider's eyewitness view of America's descent into military totalitarianism. Uh, we have more surprises for today, and I would suggest we go right into them. Let's go right into them. Okay, you'll love this. Uh, listen to Colonel Wilkerson. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Is it true that President Bush turned down help from Iran to help stabilize Iraq when we got in over our head, it, it, as well as offering to help stop supporting Hezbollah, uh, even allowing access to their nuclear program? I, uh, you know, in concert with their request to for us to stop supporting a group that was trying to overthrow their government, was there an opportunity to actually create a coalition, even with groups like Iran, to help solve other kind of problems, and an opportunity was missed? That's a complex issue, and it's a difficult question to answer with uh, the kind of academic or other certainty that I might try to achieve with other answers. I was privy to the offer that Iran proffered through our protecting power in Tehran, uh, the Swiss, in the spring of 2003, after I think they were shocked by what had happened in Iraq so swiftly. Uh, they didn't, they, they weren't looking at the looting, they weren't looking at the fact that we were going to make such a mess of the post-conflict situation. They were just looking at the fact that shock and awe, as General Franks called it, had worked pretty fast. And so I think they were a little bit frightened, and, and they had reason to be, in both Damascus and Tehran, that that juggernaut was going to come next for them. And so it sobered a lot of the leadership in both of those countries. And as a consequence of that, and probably as a consequence, too, of the fact that we'd cooperated quite well on the ground in Afghanistan, um, Iraq had been very cooperative. After all, the Taliban probably would have been on Iraq's list as their number two enemy after Saddam Hussein. They didn't like the Taliban either. So they cooperated with us uh, throughout the operations in Afghanistan. And so this, this offer came with no thumbprints or fingerprints on it, but clearly with the Swiss telling us and uh, Geneva, our ambassador in Geneva and the Europeans in general telling us that this was a genuine offer, that it had been all the way, it had been vetted all the way through the Ayatollah, um, certainly through the, the leadership that needed to vet it before it came mm-hmm. out. What? struck me about it was that, and this was a little bit of irony here, because I had worked initially in the State Department under Ambassador Richard Haas and the policy planning staff, and we had early on worked a little um, paper up that was for the deputy, Richard Armitage, that essentially said what we thought would be the points that would come up were we ever to talk to the Iranians seriously on both sides, Iranian points and U.S. points. We called it a non-paper, which was just <laughs> diplomatic talk for, you know, no fingerprints, no heading, no mm-hmm. signatures, no names. Uh, we had kind of given that to them while we were on the ground with them in Afghanistan. So here this thing came back 
and it looked a lot like our paper. It looked a lot like the Iranians were saying, we've looked at your paper, and we've tweaked it a bit and added a few things, um, and now we'd like to know what you think. Uh, and we refused to do anything about it, including my boss. Um, my boss was buried under North Korea at that point, and the vice president's adamant opposition to what he was doing on North Korea. My boss was also trying to keep the China account sound because Cheney and Rumsfeld were eager to make China the next Soviet Union, and Colin Powell was eager to keep them from doing that. And so in his defense, he was beleaguered at the time with other challenges that he probably thought were more important. Right. Um, and his own assistant secretary of state, Bill Burns, assistant secretary of state for Near East, um, kind of said it wasn't a serious offer, too. So, yeah, as I said, it's a more complex situation, perhaps, than some are suggesting. It wasn't an outright refusal to listen to the Iranians. It was an evaluation at state and elsewhere, and certainly in the vice president's office, that it wasn't a serious offer. I think that was wrong, um, but that's my opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the problem is you talk about priorities. All of those things are important, and yeah. you don't know what's going to be more important down the road. Uh, stepping back quite a ways, and we, we being future quake, we talk as much about history as we do anything else on yeah, here. Yeah, we could almost call it history quake. Well, we're, yeah, past quake. <laughs> uh, I, I want to ask you, what did our founding fathers like Madison think about placing the power to conduct war in the ability to authorize it in the same hands. If I remember right, uh, this incident, like many before, like Vietnam, was not done with a formal declaration of war. Uh, there were activities that were done unilaterally through the executive administration, and right. correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like that's sort of become the new normal. Uh, I, I think LBJ no, was I... in a similar circumstance with the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, can, can you confirm that? And if so, what did our founding fathers think about that scenario? Well, I think you're right in terms of what we're doing today, and, and this is this is right where I teach. So one of the headings on my syllabus in one of my classes is Madison, and and, and Madison says point blank. I mean, I'll, I, I can quote it to you almost verbatim. Uh, those who are to conduct a war, and my memory is that he puts conduct a war in italics, emphasizing it cannot in the nature of things be proper or safe judges whether a war ought to be commenced, continued, or concluded. They are barred from the latter functions by a great principle in free government, uh, analogous to that which separates the sword from the purse or the power of executing mm-hmm. from the power of enacting laws. And he goes on to say, a country is judged free by how much it attenuates this propensity in the executive to go to war. In other words, you shouldn't have a president who can go to war anytime he wants to. Mm-hmm. And yet, we have been evolving towards that situation. And as I said before, private contractors and so forth make it all that more simple to do since 1945. It's, it's, it's the military-industrial complex, the influence that it has, the influence now that uh, other people who make profits from war have. Uh, Lockheed Martin's share price was about $26 a share, before the Iraq War, a year into that war, it was about $126 a share. When you make war that profitable, you're going to have more of it. You know, General Smedley Butler had some good suggestions in his book, War is a Racket, uh, which we, we actually talked about on our show here once about his life. He, he said that if uh, that only the people who would actually go out on the battlefield, the infantry, would be the ones allowed to vote on whether to go to war. 
and that anyone who provided hardware equipment, this is back in 1935 I wrote this, anyone who actually produced hardware equipment should only be paid the same salary as what the buck private gets paid. Uh, you know, I'm I, I, I'm a fan of Smedley. Um, he he messed around in Latin America a lot, and he knew what he was talking about yeah, when it right. came to banana plantations and coffee plantations. Right. And what is it today? Why are we doing what we're doing in Honduras? AT and T. Why did we do what we did in Chile when we ignominiously over helped overthrow Allende and get him killed? ITT. Um, you scratch real hard on a clandestine operation authorized by the president, conducted by the CIA, and you'll find American corporation, corporations all over it. And if you take wow. the profit motive out of war, you'll find the voices pushing for war and paying the bills to promote it will quickly disappear. Be Absolutely. John Kennedy once said, a man much maligned, a man who probably had as much courage as any president we've ever had. He stood up to the military twice. Uh, after the Bay of Pigs, when they wanted to invade Cuba, he said no. And then during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when they wanted to invade Cuba again, he said no. Uh, this was a brave president. Um, and John Kennedy said, we will never have peace, not sustainable peace, until more young men want to be conscientious objectors than want to be warriors. Wow. That's a profound statement. And I find it, and my my grandmother was a staunch, my, my grandmother taught Sunday school for 65 years. They gave her an honorary bed in the Darlington, South Carolina Baptist home because they loved her so much. Um, that's my idea of Christianity. That's, <laughs> that's the Christian that I see, that's the Christ I see. You know, right. not a warrior, not a guy with a flaming sword going to kill all the Jews at the rapture. My Christ is a person who came to reverse the Old Testament teachings, or at least to extend them and expand on them, and to make love and charity and all those good things the, the preeminent features in human life, mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than war and fighting and killing and so forth. That's why I find a lot of the evangelical movement in this country, as you've expressed it, and the support for war and so forth, absolutely mystifying. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, you know, we come from, from a strong evangelical background here. Um, we consider them one of us, and that's what has created a unique ministry for us here and what we do. And I would suggest for you and your students, uh, if you could make one of their listening assignments, is to listen to the archives of futurequake.com. <laughs> we go into the Old Testament, and we, yeah. we have an explanation on why things happened the way they did in the Old Testament, the wars and the other kind of things. And, in fact, if you look very carefully uh, the wars that did happen in the Old Testament, other than taking the promised land, the rest of them were uh, reactive wars based upon um, bad things that the people of Israel did. They were judged and they had to respond uh, to yep. regain their land. But yep. there are some answers in that, and uh, I would recommend that you and your uh, your students go back and listen to that, and you'll find it very clearly that God is consistent uh, in the new revelation he brings through Jesus Christ. And that brings I, up – I'm sorry – Well, there's a theory that comes out of that, too, and my wife's Catholic, so, um, I mean, Cicero um, postulated this for the Roman Empire even before the Catholics, uh, Augustine of Hippo and so forth, St. Thomas Aquinas and others, began to develop this theory that the Catholics called just war, which most everyone Mm -hmm. has has adopted in the the free world, in the Western world, the international uh, consortium that I would say are our friends and allies. 
And you, you examine that theory alone, which I call the Catholic theory of just war, and we don't fit it anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We don't even fit that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most, the most prominent one of those for me is the one Powell used to throw out all the time. It's what got him the sobriquet of the reluctant warrior. You better have gone through every other tool in your kit bag. Economic mm-hmm. power, financial power, diplomatic power, political power. You better have gone through all of that before you resort to war. It should be, in Catholic just war theory, the very last resort. Mm-hmm. And uh, we haven't met those criteria for a long time. You're starting to sound like Ron Paul talking like this. He's, he's one of the <laughs> I few like people. Ron. Ron's a good, he, he's a good man. I, I admire him. I like He and Walt Jones mm-hmm. are, are two of my... Uh, favorite guys on the hill i i disagree with some of their their uh theory because i i simply don't think in the 21st century century it's implementable mm-hmm. but i do respect their views and i certainly respect their courage in advancing those views mm-hmm. well speaking of these uh, spiritual topics that leads into my next question uh because as a christian show uh, even though we're a, a really strange christian show i would admit we often focus uh, on our show about the various deceptions that our American and global institution foist upon a gullible, distracted, and complacent public. In fact, we state uh, many times in Revelation 18 in the Scriptures, which is our primary focus, in the Bible it, it shows Christians there that the kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth, and they're called actually global merchants there in the Greek, they conspire together and they use various uh, things at their disposal like drugs or what they call sorcery and other means to deceive the nations of the earth. And the, the pattern, the template is already there in Scripture, in ancient Scripture, that you have corporate interests, global corporate interests, uh, you have uh, civil authorities through the kings, they conspire together, and that deceiving the masses is one of their normal operations, and it has been since the first days that, that uh, governments came together. In our regular review of the news, we have pointed out things such as the, and I want you to correct me if some of my facts are wrong here, that the uh, supposed Kuwaiti nurses who testified before the Gulf War uh, that Iraqi invading soldiers were pulling babies from the incubators to die, uh, testifying directly to Congress to influence theirs in the public opinion about entering the war, were in fact, per my reading, presumably members of a public relations firm hired by the administration. Uh, we have also discussed the attack on American veterans and the bonus army by our own military, uh, even the attempted seduction of General Butler again coming yep. up here. Yep. Um, by well-known business interests that attempted to overthrow our government back in 1933. And in more modern times, we have discussed the total falsification of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, which led to tens of thousands of Americans dying overseas in Vietnam. Obviously affected your life personally. And then claims by journalists such as Cy Hirsch, uh, who says that uh, Cheney personally told him and others his desire to disguise American ships uh, as Iranian ships and to stage an attack, to falsify an attack, and provide grounds for an invasion of Iran. Now, I would submit that these are treasonous acts of war, uh, and they're a type of disinformation hostile campaign against the American people themselves. Do you agree with this assessment? And if so, what other incidents have you witnessed that are aware of that exhibit the intentional deception of the American public by elected officials and their support staff? Well, the one I was involved in myself comes to mind immediately. We, as I said, we perpetrated a hoax on the American people. 
um, with regard to cherry-picking the intelligence and then forming the intelligence to make it look as if Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. I think you're looking at a at a phenomenon that's a, a bit more complex than what our founders might analyze it to be, guys like Madison and Franklin and Jefferson and Washington and others. Um, it's not the same thing as what they looked at so hard and with such an intense focus, monarchy. Uh, George III in particular, but monarchy all over Europe in general. What it is today, I'm not even sure they would recognize, because I, I call it a national security elite that is so convinced of its own expertise and its own purpose that it is willing to to go by the old adage of the end justifies the means more often than not. Because they believe their end is is so laudatory and so important, whether it's the security of this nation or their own hold on political power, and sometimes those two things are indistinguishable uh, in the individual, um, they believe they can do anything, torture people, start wars, uh, declare that uh, bin Laden is the equivalent of the existential threat of 30,000 nuclear missiles from the Soviet Union, which, of course, he's not. Um, as a matter of fact, your listeners might be interested in just some, just some facts. You know, we lose more people on the highways of this country every year than have died in the entirety of our history as a result of terrorist attacks. Bin Laden accomplished the deaths of 9-11 for about 500,000 U.S. dollars. We have spent two trillion already trying to track him down, trying to catch him, trying to combat what he supposedly has done. This doesn't work. In anyone's physical book, this simply doesn't work. We're going to bankrupt the country. We're going to bankrupt it morally and spiritually, and we're darn sure going to bankrupt it financially. Um, why are we doing things like this? You cited some of the reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is an uninformed, an uninformed electorate, an uninformed people who are either apathetic or who are so misinformed through the media or whatever that they don't know how to make good decisions. They don't know how, as Harry Truman would say, they don't know when to throw the bastards out. Um, I don't know how you fix this either. That's what's got me really worried about the future. I, I don't see anyone walking around with big ideas, uh, risk-taking entrepreneurial ideas, uh, as as was done in 1775 and 1776, mm -hmm. for example, uh, to fix this. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like everyone is pretty content uh, with just getting their, their share of the pie and receding into the woodwork. Well, you know, uh, you were given a week to go over the intelligence data for uh, uh, before the uh, the Iraq War. Um, I'll give you until the end of the interview here to come up with some of those great solutions. Yeah. So if you <laughs> yeah, can I'll work my on the clock is ticking. Here you go. <laughs> I'll set the egg timer. If one, of I, one of the questions on my final exam: <laughs> How would you fix the dysfunctional United States government? <laughs> and if you hear something good, send it over to us. Uh, <laughs> one thing I would say off the top of my head that I would submit that we try to attempt here, otherwise we're wasting our time here, is that if we can inform and educate other institutions in society, like the people of faith, like the religious institutions, like others, uh, not just religious, even other institutions in society, 
that can have some influence if they choose to step up. Uh, we believe they should solve other societal problems, the uh, health care needs of society, the issues of poverty, uh, issues of injustice when it occurs in our courts. These are the responsibilities of citizens, not government. Government can serve as a tool uh, when coercive power is needed to resolve an issue. Oh, you're right. That's but, the reason I say, uh, you know, I am as responsible as is every American who carries a credit card, for example, and who has abused that credit card for the current financial crisis. It's not fair to put it all on the Congress or the president mm-hmm. or uh, the investment banks because people have been at the trough feeding like pigs. Mm-hmm. When, when you have a country where, uh, what, a third of uh, adults have a credit card that's maxed out, um, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. But when the savings rate is negative, you're in trouble. Um, well, and the only, right. the only technique I know is to try to make these corrupted institutions as as um, irrelevant as we can possibly make them, starve them financially, uh, try to dilute their power in any way possible, step in and fill vacuums before they take an opportunity to do it. And that's what we try to do in this show is to energize people of faith, first of all, to know the truth. If anyone has a responsibility to embrace truth, even when it's difficult to swallow, it's people of faith because it says they follow the way, the truth, and the life. So they were responsible to set the example and then to actually lead society, and not in a coercive way, but by example, to bring about justice and truth because of this. And we'll talk about that at the end of the show here. You know, as a, as a long term... Well, let let me just say to that, amen, brother. <laughs> we love to hear those here. Um, you've spoken a lot, uh, particularly about Cheney and Rumsfeld. And um, a lot of Christian people will circle the wagons around them because they know people on the far left, for example, love to take their shots at Cheney and Rumsfeld. And so they get very defensive in protecting them. But but you have minced no words in what I've reviewed of your materials about laying a lot of blame at their feet. And many of our guests have as well, too. And they've provided information, such as even their activities that started under the Ford administration when they started building FEMA to take activities uh, far beyond what it was orig- originally intended to do and to build alternative security structures. Um, can you explain why you think these Republican icons, Cheney and Rumsfeld, have what, what they've had in changing American policy uh, and the role of neocons as well uh, in how the 911 event provided both these parties their opportunities? Well, the neocons are, are a different breed of cat. They are truly the modern manifestation of the Jacobins. And when I say that, I mean they are Robespierre and the Committee for Maximum Security, uh, the Committee for Public Safety. Uh, they're everything that corrupted the French Revolution, which brought such hope to the continent and then turned into Robespierre and the guillotine and ultimately into Napoleon. Um, I don't know a neocon who is still a neocon. Now, there's some who have retreated from it because they saw the dangers of what they were doing. Like Fukuyama comes to mind. Uh, but guys like Richard Pearl, guys like Douglas Fife, um, they are Trotskyist. They believe that the world is perfectible and mankind is perfectible. And worse, they believe that you can do that by force uh, at the point of a bayonet, mm. and the American bayonet, as a matter of fact. Uh, that is the most dangerous thinking on the face of the earth, in my view, not only because it's impossible, but because it costs 
the lives of young men and young women mm-hmm. when you try to achieve it, mm-hmm. and it costs the lives of the people you're trying to achieve it with. So I dismiss them as nuts. Um, Cheney and <laughs> you know, that, that hurts because there's a religious dominionist arm that falls in concert with them that uses the gospel, for example, as a means by which to justify their motives internationally. Well, I've sat beside people who were telling me that they were giving money, good Christians, giving money in order to finance settlements, Jewish settlements in the West Bank, because they felt like their religion indicated to them that was what they were supposed to do. And when I confronted them with what I thought was the problem with that, i.e., you're exacerbating tensions in the Middle East, you're going to cause a real problem for the United States in dealing with those tensions. The answer is the rapture is coming. Christ with a flaming sword will stand astride the Middle East. And you look at him and say, well, what's going to happen to the Jews? Well, they'll either convert on the spot or he'll slay them. Um, What's going to happen to the rest of the world? We don't care. The rapture's here. I have a real problem with that As as a person who served in the government, as a person who... Um, tries to deal deal with the world as he sees it, as a person who probably in international relations terms is a realist, and yet a person of faith. I have a real problem with people who are exacerbating my job that way uh, for those very specific, in their minds, religious purposes. That's that's hurting my country. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe maybe they don't think there's enough war in the world already. And if they think they help God by trying to cause some more wars, that we'll get a prerequisite number of wars, that something good I, will come out of it. That's one of the scariest things about it. To me, they seem to be genuine, genuine in their faith, in their belief. And you, it's rare that you can dissuade someone from that point of view. They seem to almost be on some form of narcotic rather than on what I would say a clearly thought out religious path. Well, this is a sensitive topic for us because I'm much sure. much of the content of our, of our show, I don't say much, but a significant part, are in areas of our faith we take seriously in the Bible, like Bible prophecy. We believe the Middle East is going to play a role. We believe God will do in the in the future what he's done in the past. But as we've discussed on our show, that does not mean that we are supposed to physically intervene and, and try to deduce the mind of God and personally intervening particularly to the negative impact of other people, including Palestinian Christians, who actually yep. could be harmed by these activities that are going on with the presumption that we understand the mind of God and how he wants things to play out. You know, um, one thing we do know that the Bible says is God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And unfortunately, the description of many Christians like this is that they are willing that many shall perish rather than come to a p- repentance. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, down with the Jacobins, Bionic. Well, you're on that Jacobins thing, aren't you? I, well, we just got to go. I could get into it. Okay. Uh, we got to go. Well, um, have you enjoyed this uh, Rocking, discussion? With loving it. Yeah. Um, he speaks from a specific position of authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, having seen all these guys up front, worked with them directly, uh, Republican background, a man of faith, and he's calling it the way he sees it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not surprised with the findings that he has. I'm just surprised someone at his high level is doing it. He's really takes, takes he's a very like, brave man. This is it? what it is. Yeah. yeah. Another brave man is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Let's get out of here. Come back for installment three of our interview with Colonel Wilkerson. Till then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Guess who I'm not a friend of? Bionic. I'm guessing Jacobins. Yes. But one person we are a friend of is uh, Army Colonel, retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who is a professor and the former Chief of Staff of Secretary of State Colin Powell, talking about an insider's eyewitness view of America's descent into military totalitarianism. We have little time. So here's Colonel Wilkerson, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. I'll share with you a very uh, dramatic moment in my life. I picked up the phone one day. My boss was in Ramallah. I thought at the time, meeting with Yasser Arafat, who at the time was still alive. And I picked up the phone, and I, I can't give you the full details because, it, well, let's just say I'm, I'm not going to give you the full details, but it, the guy on the phone was in charge of a major Christian segment in the West Bank and in Jerusalem. And he said to me, I'll never forget these words, he said to me, if your boss is not successful, I will predict that Christians will be out of this area within the next two decades. We will be forced to get out of it. This is this was a Christian prelate who had dedicated his life to the church in that region, in a very difficult region to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And here he was telling me that we... If we weren't successful, and we weren't, um, we're going to drive Christians out of that area. He was right. It is becoming untenable to be a Christian in that area. Most disturbing to me, it is becoming untenable to be a Christian in Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, as we discussed on our show, uh, a large number of the major evangelical ministries that take tours over to Israel, uh, and that is a big cash cow for them. They make a lot of money to support their ministries with it, uh, and they generally do good work. But uh, according to some reports, they have signed pledges not to even allow anyone in their group to share their faith about Christ uh, while they're in Israel. Well, now, isn't that a contradiction? <laughs> as evangelicals, yeah, okay. that's what it's all about for evangelicals, is sharing of faith. That That is the one reason why the Lord that's lets us reside here. Evangelical, yeah. So yes, when, you tie yes. the ta- when you tie the, ta- the hands of the Holy Spirit to move you when he calls you to speak to others, there's, there's some major reassessment that needs to be done internally. Uh, regarding, uh, I know we got off the track here, Cheney and Rumsfeld. I know these are two uh, two guys you really think very highly of. Can you share us very briefly, uh, summarize what you think of the main things that they've done to put us in the situation that we're in? Well, I, I have a real problem with the vice, former vice president because I think what motivates him is power, and what motivates him is his conception of what his position in that power is, and only secondarily is the country thought of. 
because he believes, and, and I'm I'm absolutely convinced of this in his soul, that his interest and the country's interests are coincidental or synonymous. I, I've never seen that happen before. There have been people who thought that, Nero, Caligula, uh, not to mention too many others. Uh, but that's what scared me about Cheney, is that I think it's fair to say that he's a totally amoral man, that his yardstick is power, not faith, it's not patriotism, it's not the country, it's power. Uh, the more power, the better. The more personal power, even better. Um, Kissinger once said, you know, playing on Lord Acton's term, uh, power corrupts and absolute power pause is kind of nice. Well, that's the way, that's, I think that's the way Cheney operated. Wow. Um, Cheney's personal wealth went from something like, from my review of his of his uh, disclosures, uh, financial disclosures, went from something like two to four million dollars to about seventy million dollars. Here's a man who, as Secretary of Defense, while I was there, let out a couple of million dollar contract to Halliburton Industries to study whether or not the Defense Department should proceed uh, essentially hellbent for leather on outsourcing functions, many of which had been more or less considered within the department and by the Congress as inherently governmental. That is, they should not be privatized. Uh, Cheney gets this study back from Halliburton in 92, as I recall, and, of course, Halliburton says, this is a wonderful idea. Let's do this. Let's outsource. Then Cheney walks out the old revolving door and becomes CEO of that company. And his personal wealth goes to something like $70 million. This is all legal. But it doesn't mean that I have to like the people who do it. And Cheney is the quintessential genius at doing it. He is probably the best bureaucrat I've ever met in my life at doing these sorts of things. That is to say, getting over and profiting from getting over. Um, that's what I disliked about and still dislike about the man most of all. Cold as a fish, has about as much warmth as a Bunsen burner that's been off for a century, um, and simply believes he's right. Um, there's no religious belief to it, in my view. It's personal, it's power-oriented, and he's a scary person. And that's the reason uh, I've become very outspoken about him, because, as I've said, the only man I can see in our history that compares to Cheney in terms of danger to this republic was Aaron Burr. Mm. Wow. Wow. Do you recommend this? You know, well, I guess I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I know he met a certain uh, demise. He was dealt with in a certain way. I yeah. guess we'll let uh, nature take its course yeah. in that respect. It sounds like you, you know, you you speak of all these things, in a, and it, I just can't help. My mind goes back to, like, Emperor Palpatine there in the Star Wars trilogy, you know. Yeah. Uh, totally, totally uh, amoral, completely, completely after power, and everything else is secondary. I, I think that's right, and I'm I'm shaking in my boots at the prospect of him riding his horse into a coincidence of events, maybe another terrorist attack or whatever, which probably is inevitable, and becoming president of the United States. Mm -hmm. That's pretty scary. Very scary to me.
You know, I, I wasn't going to talk. I, I was going to skip over this question because we, you had already touched on the fact that um, if you really look objectively at the threat of terrorism, the cure is much more worse than the malady. Um, mm-hmm. the, the the total number that affect the terrorism in our lives is, is dwarfed by, like you say, the number of deaths by car accidents in a given day. One thing that concerns us a lot as we've been following this is that at least domestically, uh, many of these supposed terrorist incidents that were stopped, if you stick with the story and follow it and look at the fine print days later, you'll find that they were led by an FBI agent who was creating a sting operation, went to some of these uh, mosques, uh, picked up some people who usually were mentally deficient enough that they, they could not represent themselves at trial, uh, offered money to them, uh, ordered some fertilizer or something like that, and then they call in and say they've caught a big uh, sting. Uh, they've, they've stopped a terrorist cell. But over and over again, the leader seems to be somebody in our own government. And then more recently, we've had this word that one of the ringleaders of the Mumbai attacks was actually a double agent uh, that was involved with us. Uh, we know that uh, many of al-Qaeda were actually on the CIA payroll right up to the time of 911. Of course, they were useful when, when we had our agenda in Afghanistan. Um, do, do, do you fear, when you talk about Cheney and the, the amorality of people like this, that they would stoop so low as to use things like this themselves to adjust the timing of it, uh, when things occur, when maybe when the, when the public wavers in their support for war, that they would actually work with some of these kind of things to exaggerate the terrorist threat? I'm compelled to say yes because I know how much they harped on, exaggerated, and pushed the idea of a connection, a significant connection, between bin Laden's al-Qaeda and the Mukhabarat, the intelligence service, uh, ultimately Saddam Hussein. Um, and I know that they actually shifted their harsh interrogation methodologies with that in mind as early as the summer of 2002. That is to say they were no longer after as a primary objective information about al-Qaeda and bin Laden and another attack on the United States. They were after information that would give them proof that there was a significant contact between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda so they could have more justification for their war. Um, And they were willing to take information to that effect that was gained through torture in a foreign capital with no U.S. uh, personnel present when the information was gained. Uh, Sheikh al-Libi, for example, was tortured in Cairo, no U.S. personnel present, and he was tortured quite extensively by the Egyptians before he supposedly revealed that there were these significant contacts. Um, so if they'll go that far, if they'll condone that kind of action, I ha- I'm compelled to answer your question in the affirmative and say, I don't believe I would put almost anything beyond these people. You know, when you reflect on things like Operation Northwards, uh that a prior chief of Joint Chiefs of Staff had approved of actually shooting down airlines full of Americans to try to pin on the Cubans. Uh, or you you even think about the terrorist incidents that have been documented, we mentioned in Iran, uh, to, to overthrow their uh, secular government. We're led to the same position here, and we just shudder to think that, that this could be exacerbated by power-hungry people within our own government. And it really doesn't take that many people buying in to pull off a lot of this. You're right. You're um, right. I, I sometimes tell my students, 
I look at my students uh, and I say, you read Shakespeare? And they nod their heads. I say, you read uh, King Henry V, King Henry IV, Part One and Two, Hamlet, Macbeth? You read those? Yes. You, you think they're good? Yes. You think they're representative of life and human nature? Yes. Do you think Shakespeare held the mirror up to life, as he said? Yes. Why would you think that our leaders would be any different from those leaders? They're human. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my students sit there looking at me like I'm crazy at mm-hmm. first. Yeah. But then, Nobody you know, likes that like, question. Yeah. yeah, light bulbs start going off over their head, and, and you say, yeah, they put their pants and their skirts on the same way everybody else does. And as our founders pointed out very eloquently, when power can be abused, it will be. And since 1945, we have been very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. That's right. Be- becoming a superpower has its own seduction to it. It certainly does, uh, almost like a narcotic. You mentioned a topic that is near and dear to you and as well to us, and that's regarding uh, torture and the detainment of individuals at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, I believe you've stated from my, my reading of your work that of the 800 or so people that have been detained there, roughly two dozen could probably construed as actual terrorists. Um, the others have been described as innocent parties for the most part who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, evidence also seems to suggest that the government, uh, there's, there's actual data that shows that they soon understood that most of these other people were indeed innocent, but chose to still detain them and even routinely torture them for years afterwards in case they might give some data that could have some actionable use later. Is this your understanding of the situation, and how did the acceptance of this formulate within the government, including, I believe, there's six attorneys that played a critical role you mentioned, and, right. and why do you think it's been marginally accepted by the American public, even those people who call themselves evangelicals? Well, to, to defend, if I may for a moment, the leadership, or at least a portion of it, I, you'll never find me defending those six lawyers or the vice president's office, uh, particularly David Addington, who's one of the six lawyers, and the real brain trust behind it all, uh, or Dick Cheney or any of his major staff members. I will not defend them, but I will say uh, for the American people and, and for the other people within the government at the time, I think a defense of their posture, their position, is that they didn't know that this was the case because it was hidden from them. And it was hidden from them for a number of reasons. One, because people at the lower level who did know the truth didn't want anybody up higher to know the truth because they were afraid for their own rear ends. What would happen to them if suddenly they found out, oh, of the 742 people initially flown into Guantanamo, uh, only about a dozen or so were real terrorists? Oh, man, if that ever gets up to the, to the higher authorities, my God, we're in trouble. Um, so there was a lot of that, just just human nature, if you will. On the on the other hand, too, I have to say that I believe Cheney was very successful in keeping the more heinous things he was doing very close to his inner circle and to his uh, expanded network only when they needed to know about it. The majority of people didn't know these things were happening. Look at us at State at the time. Powell knows that in the morning meetings he's turning to his uh, uh, ambassador, special envoy for war crimes, uh, Pierre Prosper, and he's saying, why is Jack Straw, the foreign minister of England, asking me about these people? And Pierre says, well, they're British citizens. Um, Powell, in some perplexity, says, well, why can't we repatriate them? Why don't we repatriate them? That's what Jack wants. Uh, well, Rumsfeld won't let us. 
wait a minute, you're telling me we don't trust the British who are better at this than we are to hold, question, and, and maintain terrorists or terrorist suspects? What's wrong with this picture? Well, I'll go back to DOD. And this goes on for week after week. The Uyghurs, for example. Everybody knew the Uyghurs. There were 16 Uyghurs. That's from Xinjiang mm-hmm. province in China. They were innocent. What do we do? We can't, we can't break them out. We can't return them to China because the Chinese will take the opportunity probably to slit their throats. We don't want to do that. We can't find anybody else in the world to take them. So what do they do? They languish in Guantanamo for years. Um, we had a 13-year-old down there. We had a 14-year-old down there. We had a 96-year-old down there. Uh, fortunately for Powell, he was able through some great de- a great deal of pressure through Condi Rice and others to manage to convince people that these people probably should be let go. Um, but that took some time, too. Uh, the initial problem was that we did no real battlefield vetting. We simply, and I understand the combat troops doing this, they wanted them off their hands. They knew that if they gave them to General Dostum or to someone of the warlords in the Northern Alliance or in the affiliated groups that originally flowed into Kabul, that they'd probably slit their throats or shoot them. Uh, indeed, Dostum at that time mm-hmm. was being accused of having aerated a bunch of connexes that had people in them uh, with AK-47s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our troops did the best thing they could. They didn't have enough troops to manage it themselves, so they said, get them out of here. So they flew them to Guantanamo. Um, once you find out that the bulk of the people you've got there uh, haven't done anything really, uh, and we knew that, I think, within oh, nine to ten months, uh, clearly knew that, what are you going to do with them? You have just pulled them out of any kind of legal regime that makes sense. You have them in a legal limbo. That was your intent. And you can't admit that you've made this large a mistake, so you keep them there. And then you make some excuse up like, well, you're going to keep questioning them, and you're going to put all the information they give you in the computer, and you're going to shake it up in this computer, and it is going to reveal things that even they didn't know they knew. Uh, This so-called mosaic theory about building an intelligence picture. Uh, All of this played into it. I'm, I'm saying all this because it wasn't quite as simplistic as some people have suggested, and maybe some people have even interpreted my remarks to indicate that it was simplistic. It wasn't. It was, it was a difficult situation, and some people made some really horrendous errors in, in dealing with it. And when the State Department in particular stepped in, and a lot of foreign ministers around the world who wanted their people back stepped in and said, give us our people back, repatriate our people or whatever, um, we were unsuccessful in doing it because Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney stood in the way, four square, with the president behind them. And did those three people, Rumsfeld, Bush, and Cheney, know positively that their stance was based on the House of Cards? That's a, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I have to, I have to believe that after a year or so, They must have suspected that because some of the things they did to cover up their tracks would indicate that. And by by cover their tracks, I mean things like uh, reaction to Supreme Court decisions, their their more or less adamant stance that the people had to stay in Guantanamo. They didn't want them to come out. I think one of the things President Obama's Department of Justice has discovered now is that there is no chain of evidence no evidentiary standards whatsoever 
for those people in Guantanamo. So when you say you're going to close Guantanamo, you're presented with some very stark choices. You either release them or you try them and release them. Because there is no chain of evidence, there is no evidence. And that's scary because there might be a few terrorists you release. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have lots and lots of innocent people Absolutely. that could be you or me yep. that have been taken from their families and you've doomed them because of this. That's correct. And, and our philosophy has always been, with some hiccups now and then, that better to let a guilty man go than to restrain or even hang an innocent person. Mm-hmm. That's always been a part, a pillar of our system of jurisprudence. And we have vacated that simply because Cheney said if there's a 1% solution that one of those five, 600 people is going to make a terrorist attack on the United States, I'm willing to sacrifice the other 499. Mm-hmm. That's well, Cheney's philosophy. Well, that certainly helps me to understand things like the MIAC report and DHS report that puts together people who are pro-life, uh, people even who believe in end-time prophecies, according to the reports, uh, people who are pro-national sovereignty, retur- who are pro-constitution, returning people, veterans. Yeah. Uh, it, it might be safe just to go on and keep them all under monitoring and possible detainment one day, because you never know, one or two of those in there might be doing something bad one day. Yeah, and, and that's, I think that's the basic philosophy. Um, and this is going to come back and bite us. That's what I tell people about the torture I well, say, when what, we put the Japanese in concentration camps um, during World War II, I, I, I've read some historians that say, yeah, there were probably one or two spies in there. Um, mm-hmm. Did that justify putting all those Japanese Americans in concentration camps? Uh, don't think so, but mm-hmm. FDR did it. Mm-hmm. And as if you, you've pointed out, our founding fathers and America through most of its history understood that the greater danger was tyranny from its own government uh, than these individuals that might pop up and have localized threats. And, and we would rather, since, since uh, real security that, that we're envisioning here is illusory, and the closest way you get to it is in a totalitarian state like North Korea, which has a few other negatives to offset that security. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, have, they have superb security. Someone someone said to me the other day, I'll bet you Bin Laden wouldn't try to infiltrate North Korea. <laughs> I bet he wouldn't either. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And so we had, Americans traditionally have said we would rather be free and live with a little risk rather than be under that, and something has changed. And... Uh, all of America's hands are dirty when they're aware of that, when, when they're aware of this possibility that the innocent suffer because of this. But I hold particularly accountable people of faith who have a responsibility. They, they, you know, they, they have to look beyond being simple pragmatists to looking at morality, uh, to looking at the shoe on the other foot, and, and looking beyond the 90 and 9 to the one that's lost. And sometimes those ones that are lost are sitting in a jail languishing somewhere, and they may be a different faith than we have. They may have a different understanding of the world than we have. And so we have a special burden that we carry uh, for this. You know, well, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate what you're saying. Um, you know, as, as a patriot, I, I look at it from the perspective, too, of the past was give me liberty or give me death. The present is give me security at any cost. That's a heck of a transformation. Yeah, that's that's exactly very stark. 
That's exactly right. Um, a few weeks ago, we had on a prominent psychiatrist. Now, things are going to get weirder here, so I appreciate yeah. you sticking with me here. We now had, that we've drawn you in. <laughs> yeah, now you're going to see the real future quake. Got some tinfoil for a hat? We had, we had a prominent psychiatrist on who wrote a book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called The CIA Doctors, in which he revealed... Yes, I, I have heard of it. Okay. He revealed copious uh, Cold War era declassified CIA documents that showed uh, a generation ago the the ability of um, the scientists that had been employed both within the government and ones that they had... Uh, it had covertly within the academic communities uh, to, to create Manchurian candidates, uh, unwitting spies, by means of torture, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, and other techniques. Uh, and this was well underway many decades ago. Now, the alleged terrorists that are now coming to trial include, I believe, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who has been reported from, from my readings to have been waterboarded at least a couple hundred of times and is also reported to have confessed to bombing buildings that were not even built yet when he was arrested, uh, due to some of my references. Now, what it, while it's been shown that torture can cause recipients to confess to anything, these available mind control techniques by the CIA, uh, and by the way, the CIA's had exclusive access to these detainees for a better part of a decade, one form or another, presumably can even make recipients retain false memories of incidents they've experienced. The government and their conservative supporters in, in, in the media do not want such individuals to be tried in civilian courts where they might be cross-examined and evidence of their guilt demanded to be produced. And you've already mentioned this earlier, but rather perform behind closed doors in military tribunals, particularly since they have, quote, already confessed. When such detainees have seen the light of civil judicial proceedings, uh, and, and I think you've confirmed this, condemning evidence has been hard to obtain, and the government has even been found in contempt of court by judges for not supplying court-ordered evidence and documents. What do you think about these matters, and what does it uh, portend for the future character and nature of our people and our society? My general comment is I, I have grave concerns about many of the things that you've just discussed. I'm I'm a member of the Security and Liberty Committee of the Constitution Project here in Washington, and one of the issues we're going over with a fine-tooth comb right now is this business of military commissions or military courts martial versus the federal court system. And I understand from listening to all sides of this argument how serious a matter it is to bring someone like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed into the federal court system. Um, and how difficult it makes it to do that, especially the way he's been treated up to this point, and some of the others who are less well-known than he, but just as nefarious as he. Um, it's very difficult to treat them in the federal court system without doing some things that probably in and of themselves are going to compromise your justice system. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future and Tom Bionic. Wow. No middle we've got, we've, We don't have a lot of time, man. Okay, I know we got to go. It's amazing to hear a military man like this speak about these topics yes. as a man of peace. He makes me, and he inspires me to deeper, more clear-headed thinking. Hmm. You know who inspires me? Merv, Merv. who can tell, tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. All right, let's get out of here. Come back for the last section tomorrow with Colonel Wilkerson. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Hoo-yah! Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, 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 no friend of the Jacobon Bionicon. Okay, you're making up for yesterday with no middle name. Yeah. Well, today is our last segment of our interview this week with retired Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who is also a professor and was the former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, talking about an insider's eyewitness view of America's descent into military totalitarianism. It's been a wonderful discussion of a man um, that served in America, served in uh, battle in Vietnam, and has some surprising things to say. And it's very interesting in light of the past shows that we've had. So uh, with no further ado, here is Colonel Wilkerson in our last segment, and we'll be right back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. I understand why the Congress tried to create another, if you will, set of courts, call them national security courts, call them military commissions, whatever you want. Um, I understand their motivation. I understand why they did it. I understand why Geneva is not necessarily the right tool for some of these people. The International Convention Against Torture stands as treaty law and should be obeyed, but still I understand why some of these people might uh, convince people that they're outside the, the regime of the treaty. That all said, I think to do this sort of thing, and to do it as incompetently, certainly, as the Bush administration did it. And I'm not sure any administration can be so competent that I would feel like, you know, giving them carte blanche. But I think it's a very dangerous road to walk down for for these very reasons and some of the reasons you've pointed out, that we humans are imperfect. And whether it's a jury trial or a trial by judge or a uniform court of military justice or whatever, it's imperfect. Um, and so you best bring all the powers you can to bear on it to bring some accountability, some transparency, and so forth to it. Um, I've often said that if if, if I had Kalade make, Kalade make if I had KSM mm-hmm. or I had um, uh, Bin Laden himself or Zawahiri or I had, uh, for example, uh, Sheikh uh, Al Libi. Uh, who now has died in a Libyan prison under very questionable circumstances, so he can't say anything mm-hmm. any further about his torture. Uh, he was the one who was tortured in Cairo. Um, if I had them in front of me and I was, you know, king for a day, I'd probably say take them out and hang them. I mean, that's just my gut reaction to it. But that's very few of them. That's the very peak of the operational and strategic leadership of this very heinous organization known as Al-Qaeda. Um, I can't say that about hundreds of others that we have captured, detained, or will capture or detain. So I've got to devise some kind of legal system or some kind of 
um, underneath the military legal system that will deal with these people. I don't see that having been done very well yet, and that concerns me. It, 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 it truly does concern me. We managed to work it out in World War II, however imperfect it was. Mm-hmm. MacArthur abused it mightily in the Pacific. MacArthur took godlike powers upon himself and hung Japanese generals who had defeated him, for example, who might have been <laughs> guilty of this or that, but probably oh. weren't guilty of being summarily hung. Uh, I did so not we, know that. We've done these sorts of things in the past, um, but generally speaking, we've moved to correct it very swiftly. Um, I, I, it's a worrisome area. That's the best I can say. I, I, I have very mixed emotions about going either way with it, and I'm one of the ones holding up a, a decision in this one committee I work mm-hmm. with because I understand the military. I'm the only military person serving on it, so I understand the military dimensions of it. I understand. Let me put it this way to you. If I were going to be tried for a crime, I'd rather be tried under the UCMJ in a court-martial than I would in a civilian court because I trust the military system more than I trust the civilian court system. I've been in both, mm-hmm. uh, civil, yeah. court, civil civil, mostly. I'm, I'm not, thank God I've not been in a criminal court. Before, right. but, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I've, I, as I said, I have mixed emotions about it, but mm-hmm. I take your points. And I understand your points, and uh, I am worried about it. I don't think we've designed a regime yet that makes me comfortable as a citizen or as a soldier. Now, but you have never supported torture per se itself, correct? No, absolutely not. No. It's counterproductive. Um, Torture is used by countries around the world uh, for confession. Um, They torture because they want someone to confess, then they can put them in prison or kill them uh, and get rid of them. Uh, they're not torturing them to get what we call actionable intelligence. They're torturing them to get a confession. Mm-hmm. And, and that ought to tell you something. <laughs> if you want actionable intelligence, don't torture somebody because right. you're probably not going to get it. Right. But you can declare victory, though, if they confess to something. Well, you, can, you certainly can. And you, you can, can say it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, go back and examine Cheney's statements. Cheney seems to be saying, oh, it worked, it worked, it worked in the first place. The vice president wouldn't know it worked or didn't work because the vice president is not there. He's got to trust the person beneath him who has to trust the person beneath him to be telling him the facts. And in most cases with Cheney, you are not going to get the truth because you have so subverted the process of bringing the truth to you that no one has the intestinal fortitude to bring you the truth. Well, I want to make sure I understand the early part of your answer. You provided a long answer there, and you mentioned about people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that you weren't sure about bringing him to a civil trial because he had been tortured beforehand. What What is the risk of, of a tortured subject bringing to trial other than exposing the dirty laundry we have of what we've done and make the American public aware of what their own institutions are doing? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not a lawyer, so, man, I'm out of my element here. Um, but I have paid a lot of attention to these discussions with lawyers and others, and I don't see how you keep from perverting the very freedoms that we cherish. I think it's the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Bill of Rights. Um, why would we want to tarnish those things and we'll almost have to, if we're if we're to be successful in prosecuting these people who've been through this, bringing them into a federal court, because you can't possibly give them those rights. 
And and why and you, is that? You've already taken them away from them. <laughs> you know, the right uh, again, the right mm-hmm. to not self-incriminate. You've already taken away from them. They self-incriminated from the start. Um, so if, the right, if that happens in a if that happens to citizens, don't they declare something like a mistrial? Yeah. Or actually release yeah. people. Yeah, the right to a speedy trial. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> no speedy trial here. Um, uh, but but isn't there a risk now? Now certainly there's a risk that a terrorist would would go back out and do their dirty deeds again. But isn't there a risk that if we tolerate whoever the government says is a terrorist, and again they may indeed be, if they say whoever is a terrorist without any independent oversight, if they are convicted on data again without any independent confirmation or cross examination, and they're summarily dispensed with. At the same time, we have reports that I just mentioned, DHS, MIAC, and others, that are taking a broad brush of Americans and label them as potential domestic terrorists. Could not the day come when the shoe's on the other foot and this would be used as the justification to take away these same Bill of Rights rights we would have in trial? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something else. Um, in a briefing, um, a series of briefings, actually, that I, inten- I attended in 2003-2004 um, under my then chief of staff hat, and later in 06 and 07, briefings that I attended as an academic that were not classified, I, I know that there are people in the FBI, people in the counterterrorism, National Counterterrorism Center, People who have worked these kinds of issues most of their governmental lives, 20, 30 years, since about the establishment of the theocracy in Iran in 79, who believe that the more dangerous threat ultimately to America in terms of a terrorist attack does not abide overseas, it abides in the United States. It abides with the loner, like a Timothy McVeigh, like a Unabomber, and so forth. Hmm. who has access to the kind of technology that Timothy McVeigh put together in order to take on the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, um, they're much more worried about them because they have no data on them much at all. They're not networked. And so they just suddenly appear on your radar screen, and they usually appear about the same time the fireball from their explosion appears. So they're much more worried. I say that only to indicate that your concerns are well-placed. Because there is a considerable element of our security establishment that's focused on the domestic terrorists. Mm-hmm. Well, if I may just interject, you know, you were talking earlier, Dr. Future, about, uh, you know, the detention of American citizens. We've gotten perilously close, as I think we've reviewed on previous news. Uh, we do Friday news. We do news on the Friday show. Uh, ICE, the, uh, the Customs Enforcement mm-hmm. people, right, right. have bragged about... Uh, in one point, bragging about that, well, if you, even if this person is not illegal, if we kind of think he's illegal, we can make him disappear. And this was mm-hmm. said in a, this was said in a room full of several hundred uh, ICE customs people, including a uh, Amnesty International volunteer. Which I'm, is, I'm sitting on another group that is right now looking at privately contracted prisons, principally out west, but a few on the east coast that are essentially ignored by the government, that are being used by our immigration folks to stack away people Mm -hmm. 
either while they wait what are now called um I forget the phrase, but they don't call it deportation anymore. It's, uh, there's a term of art they're using. It just escaped me right now. But uh, they're awaiting what we would have called deportation. They don't have any access to the law, uh, public defender or otherwise. They don't know what their rights are, whether they're citizens or non-citizens, green card holders or whatever. Um, they're usually Muslims, and <laughs> they're just there. And it's it's stunning. When I first was briefed on this and I saw what the prison mm-hmm. population was and where these people were being held and the facilities that were being built, because there's a lot of profit in this for private yeah. contracts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and they don't. And the more profit, there's a lot more profit if you don't take care of them. If you don't feed them right, you don't give them health care. You know. And this is all happening right here, right now. Today in America. Well, and that's the, the, the article that I read. They sort of bragged about that. There were some facilities mm-hmm. that had uh, a single toilet, no windows. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and in some cases they were even in, they were built up in suburban business parks in different cities. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ICE could grab people they didn't like, put them there, mm-hmm. and keep them just indefinitely. Them, just like Pinochet yeah. did. Yes, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. like yeah, that. Yeah, rendition program. You, you, you know, uh, when I talk to people, particularly Christian people, and 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 I find out that they're they're supportive of terrorism and these kind of activities, I say, would you mind having your son or daughter uh, be exposed to that kind of treatment? And they say, well, of course not. And I said, well, be prepared because they will. Uh, whatever we accept uh, for these people that we make less than human, and I would like to remind people that if I understand the. Uh, our founding fathers' documents. It says that we were endowed by our Creator with these rights. Mm-hmm. It, the, these rights didn't come because we happened to be born on North American soil. It's right. because we were human beings that we were born, and that includes the worst scoundrel, the the mass murderer, uh, the person who has uh, done heinous crimes in our country. We afford them those rights because we recognize our rights depend upon that. Uh, but but those are rights that are endowed upon human beings. And, and just, just, just in contrast this, uh, I remember these, uh, less than lethal weapons like the microwave, uh, weapons that boil the water on your skin. Uh, I covered an earlier story here that these were being developed to stop the terrorists over in Iraq. These, these terrible people over there, we were going to use these weapons on them, and that's why we were paying taxpayer dollars to develop them. And what have we found since then? We've seen these weapons now employed on American streets. At political conventions, they're now at Tea Party rallies. So I, I think the more you study this, you'll find that when we tolerate dehumanizing treatment, whether it's detainment or torture or whatever, even for very bad people, it will come home to roost. And I think I, you're absolutely right. And I think I'm on on good footing with our founding fathers that was much more worried by that totalitarian tyranny from our own government than a random terrorist or rogue that could do some limited damage to us uh, at some time. No, you're absolutely right on that. Now, a critic of that uh, would say would probably say, if he knows anything about the Federalist Papers or the Madison in particular, the father of the Constitution, um, would say, yeah, but they were living in their time. Things have changed. <laughs> uh, you know, there are people, you would be surprised mm-hmm. how many people think our constitution is an anachronism mm-hmm. and we're a lot oh, yeah, we're a lot smarter than them too you know yeah yeah they, they didn't have the vision i, I want to ask you something a bit about the near future regarding iran um 
keeping in mind your experience prior to the Iraq War uh, that you shared with us uh, before going in, the deceptions I cited concerning the Gulf War, the Vietnam War, uh, the claims of Cheney to conduct false flag uh, Iranian t- attack, and and even the reaction I remember of the Republican candidates. I don't know if you remember this during the debates uh, when we had this um, these gunboat these boats. I guess they were inflatable right. boats, remember. and they said we're coming to attack you. And all of the candidates were ready to go to war. I think uh, the the uh, the Baptist pastor Huckabee said he would escort them to the gates of hell. Uh, and Ron Paul was the only one who said, you know, we might want to verify that information before we yep. go off to war. And then we found out it was a heckler on the radio band that was doing this, presumably. Given this information, do you anticipate the possibility that portions of our government will attempt to stage an event as a pretext for attacking Iran? Let me just preface or is it, it even by necessary? Saying, let me preface it by saying that I think I was proud of Ron Paul. You know, uh, there's a famous story, I think it's accurate, uh, where Grant is asleep in his tent, and it's midnight, and a young officer comes in and wakes Grant up and says, Lee has just surrounded your right flank and is about to roll up your army, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And Grant rolls over and says, thank you very much, and goes back to sleep. Beware the vividness of transient events, says Clausewitz in The Theory of War. Uh, Unstarken Eindrücken in the German. Um, Always do that. And Ron Paul did that. You need to get the facts. You You don't think that the destroyer was fired on at Tonkin unless you know the destroyer was fired on. And you certainly don't launch a war based on that kind of information, unless, of course, you wanted the war in the first place and you either staged the event or you're taking advantage of the event before people find out the truth about it in order to do what you want to do. That's generally what happens. You're asking me, do I think someone would, I think I'm hearing you right, that someone like a Cheney would actually stage the events in order to get us in another conflict. Like um, like he said he wanted to do, according to other yeah, people's testimony. Yeah. Ten years ago, I would have said, absolutely, I don't believe that could ever happen, blah, blah, blah. I can't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. I've seen people who I know would do that if they thought they could get away with it. Well, you just wow. said people who would either stage it or take advantage of the opportunity yep. Both. because yep. of that. And I would assume the incident of, of 9-11 would also fall in that category? Well, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't imagine anybody would actually kill that many Americans uh, in order to accomplish some purpose. Uh, but let's mm. put it this way. Mm. There are people who would do that, but I can't imagine that the American mm. people would, through their electoral process, put them in a position where they could do that sort of thing. I, at least I hope, I hope mm-hmm. not. Well, how, uh, how, many people, how many people died at Vietnam after the Gulf of Tonkin? Oh, non-incident. Well, after the escalations in '65, we probably put about forty-eight thousand names on that black marble wall. Okay. People misled you about the Iraq War. How many of our people died from the Iraq War? Well, we're. I look at the whole figure. It's probably. I think it's somewhere around a quarter of a million Iraqis and maybe six or seven thousand coalition forces. Okay. And we had three thousand people die nine one one. Correct. Yeah. So Bin Laden's already killed more than he killed in 911. Okay. Um, we're coming here to the very end, just the last 
three, four minutes. Can you give us just a minute comment on the economic impact? You alluded to that. But in our empire that we've created, hundreds of bases around the globe, expanding now, talking about a war in Yemen, who knows what will happen in Iran. Will the one thing that brings us to the end, just a bankruptcy like other empires like Rome and others, we will collapse under the weight of our own expeditionary activities? Yes. <laughs> I mean, simple, Could you be a little briefer? Yeah, I, I want a more a succinct. Answer. I mean, I, there, this is really a, a unique situation, though. I, I don't think from the Assyrians to the Habsburgs to the Holy Romans to the Romans, back to the Romans themselves, I, I don't think you'll find anything quite like this. We have set up two states in direct competition with one another. And we really started it in 33 when Franklin Roosevelt began to increase the size of the federal government in massive proportions to deal with it, he thought, with the Depression. He didn't deal with it. World War II dealt with it. Uh, unemployment, a lot of people forget unemployment was still around 14% in 1940. Um, so that plus what we did after 1945 in terms of building the national security state has put those two states, what I call a well-governed republic on the one hand, uh, others have called it the welfare state without any pejorative to that term, and the national security state in competition, guns and butter we called it mm -hmm. during the LBJ time. Mm -hmm. And those two states cannot be sustained indefinitely with deficit spending like we're doing uh, without bankruptcy. Now, we got a unique kick in the pants from a country called Japan for about 35 years. Mm -hmm. Japan paid us for its not having to rearm. It essentially funded our deficit spending habits for 35 years. Japan has now been surpassed in that regard by China. I would submit that China does not have the same motivation for funding our profligate habits as Japan did. So we're in a very precarious position right now. We're in a deadly embrace with China. We need each other. But once either partner decides to break that embrace, mm -hmm. the one who's going to pick himself up afterwards is not the debtor. It's going to be the creditor. It's going to be the one who right. produces who picks himself up afterwards. So it's just a matter of time till China breaks from that embrace. $1.7 trillion. I checked with Christy mm -hmm. Romer's uh, CEA this morning. They have $2.3 trillion in their current accounts. About 1.7 of that is ours. They are buying everything they can buy in the world right now. Everything that's hard, whether it's copper, magnesium, nickel, tin, oil, gas, they're buying it because they know those dollars are getting increasingly worthless, and they want to get rid of them and get rid of them for hard assets. Mm -hmm. um, they know our dollar is falling apart. They know we're falling apart, and they know they're winning. Uh, that's not a very good strategic outlook to be talking about. It worries me considerably. And it's all based on our irresponsibility with regard to spending. We're running the presses over here in Washington so fast I can smell the smoke from them out here in Falls yeah. Church. Yeah. And it takes a lot to support an empire. And I'd like to remind the people that uh, that's how the Russian empire fell within our memory. It was due to economic collapse. It was not due to our tanks rolling over. Uh, on their field. They they couldn't keep theirs going as well either. Well, I think you could even make a case that that is the case with most of uh, the empires. Mm -hmm. you that's know? right. Not just... I think it's an attribute every time. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's yep. right. We're at, the, we're at the end of our discussion here, and I'm going to let you off the hook to, to tell us 
what to do to fix. We try to make sure we give people positive solutions to turn back in a positive way. Uh, and I want to know, would sometime, would you be willing to come back and talk about maybe some creative examples of some things we could do, maybe some things your students suggest or others to sure. try to start I, addressing some of these issues? Let, let me just say, I know it's not um, uh, it's not as heartwarming as I would like it to be, but the thing that gives me hope, the thing that gives me incredible uh, optimism sometimes is my students. Mm-hmm. They are so full of energy. They're so smart, and by and large, they are unlike a generation ago that was motivated to go to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. They're motivated to do public service. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happened. I don't know why the transformation occurred. Maybe God looked down and said it's about time. Right. Um, but my students, by and large, are bright, energetic, and interested in making the world a better place to live instead of making a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And that is a very healthy development, in my view. Well, and I hope you can be encouraged about shows like Future Quake being out here. Surely. Now that you're aware of us. Did you Surely. have a good visit with us? I did. Okay. I appreciate the time. Thank you for your very, yeah. very valuable time. We'd certainly like to have you come back. This information will be very persuasive to our audience, which is exactly the purpose and why we had you here. And in closing, can you tell our listeners how they can obtain documentation, anything you might have published, or other materials that you would suggest that they could become more informed on these matters? Oh, wow. Just Google my name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, like I don't I even did. do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> There's too much there, yeah. um, you know. And, and and heck, you can give out my email. I don't. I answer emails. I try to answer every email I get. Uh, my email is uh, w i l k e r l as in love b as in boy at aol dot com. Now, how many chiefs of staff will do that? One. This, this <laughs> One, as far as I know. This was the kind of gentleman that I met yeah. and dealt with scheduling. I love this. hearing from people all across the country. Yeah. I get, I get, it's stunning to me. I get about two percent that really are vituperative, uh, even mm. you know, full of invective, and tell me that I, the devil should, you know, should grab me tomorrow. But ninety-eight percent of what I get is positive, even if they don't necessarily agree with me, right. because they're trying to find answers. Mm-hmm. Well, my dream is to get you hooked up with William Grigg at the Pro Libertati blog and have you all trade adjectives together. Boy, that'd be a heavy. Maybe we could. Maybe we could. Maybe have we'll that. have a complete Rogers thesaurus between the two. <laughs> yeah, but it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you here. Yes, and really? I hope I hope you can uh, come back when you have a time. Consider us a resource. Let us know what we can do to help uh, in spreading the information or anything else we can do on our end. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate okay. it. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And uh, you guessed it, Tom Bionic. Hmm. Well, that's it with Colonel Wilkerson. Yes. I think it's one of the important interviews in the history of Future Quake. What do you think? I felt I felt very much the same way. He touched on a number of issues with a depth and clarity and succinctness uh, mixed in with a good old, good old heaping of common mm-hmm. sense that I just, I just loved. I got his course syllabus. It was Forty-four pages, I believe. Syllabus. Yeah, wow. just the material, base material mm-hmm. with other reading. Mm-hmm. This man's a real inspiration. He has given himself over to other people. Mm-hmm. Very approachable, uh, not an arrogant man. And mm-hmm. I think if we listen to people like that, we can find solutions. Mm-hmm. Someone else who can find solutions is Merv to tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com 
suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Also not an arrogant man. That's right. Come back tomorrow for tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, audio genius. Well, not really. That's you, Bionic. <laughs> yeah, audio genius. <laughs> oh, he's making fun of me because we had some little challenges here getting started today. But you did fix it. Well, fix technically. It. But uh, it, <laughs> What do you no, mean technically? That's all that matters. You wouldn't fixed it be it. nice if we professionals ran this show? Don't tell them what I could do. I don't know. I listen to some other shows that kind of do the stuff we do. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a goofball, but sometimes I think it's like it's just a prerequisite for covering the stuff that we do. Like everything has to – we just have to act like we're, we live in a clown house or something. <laughs> okay. You know? Well, uh, this is the Future Quake show, and it is Friday, so that means it is what, Mr. Bonick? Well, it, it seems like it's clown house day, apparently. Clown house day. <laughs> Well, you almost have to give you credit for that. It is tomorrow's tremors. Okay, we got it. Tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the futures news. We hope you enjoyed uh, this week's show with uh, Colonel Wilkerson and uh, thought it was really great for him to join us mm-hmm. uh, for this week. But we've got some news stories to talk about. So mm-hmm. how would you like to go first with a news story for okay. us? Okay, I would like give to me just, an announcement. Yeah, well, just a minor announcement. Right. You know, it looks like there's going to be a uh, a conference there. That the both of us might be speaking at. I don't okay. know. Am I, letting, am I letting the cat out of the bag a little early on this? I don't know. Is yeah. it everything pretty much set in concrete? I think it's pretty much... I think the, the deal has been inked. The pen is on paper. The money has exchanged hands. Really? Yeah. I didn't get any money. I know. I didn't either. Oh, but okay. But I'm, I'm not supposed to. Oh, okay. Uh, but there's a there's going to be a uh, a conference that both, you are, both of us are going to be participating in there in uh, April here in the Nashville area. So people should keep that on their calendars. You know, okay. uh, April 23rd and 24th, I think. April 23rd and 24th. Yeah. Well, that gives us plenty of time to announce it. Mm-hmm. But if you're anywhere within traveling distance? Oh, about 10,000 miles. Okay, yeah. yeah. Solar system. Yep. Uh, plan to come to it. Yeah, come on down. Meet okay. Dr. Future. And there'll be some other special guests, mm-hmm. too. Indeed. Including one alien stranger. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody whose name rhymes with Liss Might. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of that, will Lombryonic be there? Lom will, Lom will make an appearance. Good. Yeah, Lombryonic, one of uh, our favorites. Oh, yeah, and then, uh, 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 well, yeah, and then, of course, the the, the final speaker is uh, whose name rhymes with Lus Mismar. Lus Mismar, <laughs> okay. Boy, the feds will never be able to crack this code. True. It's like the Enigma code. You joke, but uh, I mean, you know, we'll be scratching your head on that one for weeks. Unless you got some other announcements, share some stories with us. Um, all right. I have a couple of um, sort of lighthearted ones here, one or two little lighthearted ones that I thought were good. Um, this one is the IRS commissioner doesn't file his own taxes 
The tax code is too complex. This Oops. is via the Hill. <laughs> IRS Commissioner Douglas Shulman does not write does not file his own taxes in part because he believes the tax code is complex. During an interview on C-SPAN's Newsmakers program that aired on Sunday, Shulman said he uses the tax preparer for his own returns. I've used one for years. I find it convenient. I find the tax code complex, so I use a preparer, Shulman said. Pressed on how he would make the tax code simpler, Shulman responded, I don't write the tax laws. Congress writes the tax laws, so that's a whole different discussion. And I thought that was just seeing as how it's coming up on tax that, time. That deserves a wah, 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 wah. Yeah, I know, I know. And then I have another quick one here. Uh, it's just another, this is another, like, feel good. You know, we talk a lot about uh, activism and stuff and how to, um, you know, just to how to be, how to be, uh, make your voice heard, if you will. Right. Do the right thing. Here's one that I, that I, here's a website I came across that I'd just like to inform our listeners of if they want to go and check it out. Uh, I just found it this morning, so I haven't done uh, an exhaustive study. So maybe there's one or two things there that are wrong. But overall, I found it to be very, very, very good of what I saw. It's uh, called MoveYourMoney.info, and their uh, their little title is their little one paragraph explanation on the front is people all over the country are choosing to move their money out of bigger banks into smaller community-oriented financial institutions that generally avoided the reckless investments and schemes that helped cause the financial crisis. Fueled by the personal initiative of thousands, it's a grassroots effort that has the potential to shift power in the financial system away from Wall Street and to Main Street. Hmm. Check out the video, read up on what inspired the idea, connect with others through Facebook and Twitter, and then use the tools and links provided to find a community bank or credit union in your area. So that's moveyourmoney.info. And I just thought that was, you know, we try and promote, uh, uh, you know, things like that, so I figured that'd be, that'd be a good one. Cool. Um, do you want me to actually do a real story now? Well, or? if you want to, or unless you'd like me to do one here right now. But do you have one? What do you oh, got? Oh, I've got one right now if you're All very right. interested. I am. Okay. Um, this is Israel Seeking Religious War. This is from Ynet News. Oh, great. This is a, this is a, uh, it's an Israeli website. Mm-hmm. Uh, it barely does nude. It says, Fanatic waves sweeping through region, both in Arab states and in Israel. It says, The torching of the mosque in Yasuf, Displays of insubordination by soldiers from uh, Hester Yeshivas, the rabbi's revolt against the construction freeze policy, and Justice Minister Neiman's endorsement of Torah law in Israel combined to create a worrying picture. Israel is radicalizing and with a more religious IDF is confidently heading toward a re- regional religious war. Mm-hmm. It was also no coincidence that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, or Benjamin, I think as they say, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, sought fit to allay tensions around the Temple Mount a few weeks ago. And the words he uttered during the government session were meant for Israel's Arab citizens, yet their true target must be wider, Arabs, Palestinians, and Jews alike. Those terrified by the Iranian nuclear threat can relax. The state of Israel faces a greater threat in respect to the conflict vis-a-vis Palestinians and Arab states escalating into an all-out religious war. Since time immemorial, religious wars were the cruelest and most destructive of all global wars. Mm-hmm. The Middle East soil is drenched with the blood of the faithful who arrived here via long crusades in order to save the Holy Land from infidels. After all, no mon- monotheistic religion can bear the faithful of another religion. When faith is burning in one's bones, logic and common sense grow silent. 
This was the case in the past. Apparently, this is connecting, happening right before our eyes this time. For dozens of years, the conflict vis-a-vis Arab states, particularly with Palestinians, was managed in the pragmatic theater, mostly around the notion of partitioning the land. Religious values and birthrights supported other considerations. While there was always a religious and fanatic minority, uh, leaders always knew how to isolate it rather than to be led by it. Each side realized that turning this historical conflict into a religious one is destructive and would lead to explosion. The centrifuges at the mosque and the synagogue could fan the flame of religion and lead to disaster. Obviously, this person has come from a secular perspective. Yeah. Uh, It says, yet it appears that the delicate status quo in managing this complex conflict has been distorted in recent years. A global wave of religious fundamentalism is sweeping through our region, too. And this is interesting in light of this Michael Basin show we did a mm-hmm. couple weeks ago. Uh, under the new circumstances, religious values are shifting to the center of the political spectrum, and a fanatical religious minority is able to sweep the entire camp. A glowing wave of Messiah now has crossed the green line and is now threatening to sweep the entire Jewish public. That's interesting. Whoa. So why is it happening? First, religion always provided a comprehensive response to the complexity of life and also to conflict with rivals. Uh, just stick to your faith and you shall defeat the enemy. Secondly, the secular public and its leaders sank into the luxury of economic abundance, a sort of hedonistic escapism, while failing to come up with a convincing alternative for managing and resolving the conflict. Finally, the limited ability to manage the conflict in a pragmatic and tolerable manner has to do with the ongoing crisis in our political leadership. Upon the departure of our founding fathers, and that's in Israel, Mm -hmm. the political arena became a default choice for mediocre people who found their place in other systems. Uh, and then it goes on here a little bit uh, about what's going on. Uh, it says, The wretched conflict in our region has always been positioned to top of the powder keg about to blow up at any moment. Uh, the nuclear fuse is indeed new, yet the question was and remains as follows. How do we keep it, along with the religious fuse, away from reckless hands? The real leadership test requires resourcefulness in order to restrain religious aspirations on both sides, isolate the fanatical and active minority, and shift the management of the conflict vis-a-vis the Arab world back to a pragmatic and rational approach. And this was written by Professor Dan Caspi of Ben-Gurion University's Department of Communication Studies. Great. In, so, in Israel. Yeah. So there's a battle within Israel between the secular and the religious. Mm-hmm. They're fighting their own battle in mm-hmm. addition to the battle of the secular religious in each country. It's like a, a matrix of... Issues. You've got different countries mm-hmm. in opposition, but then you've got the subsets of the religious and secular within each. there, yeah. And uh, the religious versus Nimrod. It's a ball of confusion. Yeah. Big old ball of confusion. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> now we have to pay royalties for that. That was such no, no, an no, accurate I made reproduction. That up. I made that up. Oh, that yeah. was you really. That was me. I could have swore that was the original recording. Where was the original recording? Huh? That was that the was original. The temptations. Re- no, that was the original recording right there. Of yours. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sure the quality difference hopefully would help yeah. us out there distinguish. It. I can't fit in the uh, in the stage garb that they did. Well, that's true. Yeah. What you got? Story. Well, here's a good old happy one. Uh, you know, somebody that we had kind of a blast from our past, Jeffrey Smith. Remember right, we talked right. about Montana and GMO all the, foods. Yeah, all the GMO food stuff. Uh, and we should probably do some more of them health conspiracy shows. Yeah, you know, he was on right before we went to WNL. Mm-hmm. So we should have a WNL version of him. That and one be, on iTunes. That'd be great, yeah. yeah. Um, this one is sort of in honor of him. And, of course, really one of the things we talked about was 
uh, as well in the DMT show is uh, how the kings of the earth conspire to, uh, you know, pharmacia and all that right. stuff. Uh, yeah, anyway, I'll get to the article. Monsanto's GM corn damages organs. A comparison of the effects of three GM corn varieties on mammalian health. Uh, this was issued January 13, 2010, via the International Journal of Biological Sciences, hmm. which I believe is, you know, a peer-reviewed, yeah. peer-reviewed paper, uh, or a peer-reviewed journal, rather. Uh, we present for the first time a comparative analysis of blood and organ system data from trials with rats fed three main commercialized genetically modified maize. Uh, that's NK603, MON810, and MON863, respectively which are present in food and feed in the world. NK603 has been modified to be tolerant to the broad-spectrum herbicide Roundup and thus contains residues of this formulation. MON810 and MON863 are engineered to synthesize two different BT toxins using insecticides. Approximately 60 different biochemical parameters are class were classified per organ and measured in serum and urine after 5 and 14 weeks of feeding. Uh, the maize-fed rats were compared first to their respective isogenic and parental non-GM equivalent control groups. Uh, this was followed by a comparison to six reference groups, uh, including multi-pairwise comparisons with uh, false data rate, rate approach, uh, principal comparison analysis. Our analysis clearly reveals for the three GMOs new side effects linked to GM maize consumption which were sex and often dose-dependent. Now, maize is corn, right? Yes. Effects were mostly associated with the kidney and liver, the dietary detoxifying organs, although different between the three GMOs. Other effects were also noticed in the heart, adrenal glands, spleen, and uh, hematopoietic system. We conclude that these data highlight signs of uh, heptanormal toxicity, possibly due to the new pesticide specific to each GM corn. In addition, unintended direct or indirect metabolic consequences of the genetic modifi modification cannot be excluded. And uh, so there you have it. That's like smoking gun evidence that uh, Monsanto corn, uh, both of uh, NK603, MON810, and MON863, all three Monsanto corns that are being being fed commercially to cows and then mm -hmm. even, even finds its way into our foodstuffs. Not just via indirectly through mm -hmm. them eating it. It's actually used as a corn and right. corn syrup and right. things. Uh, Which and is added to almost everything mm -hmm. processed. Yeah. And the one thing that really is scary is uh, the last sentence. In addition, unintended direct or indirect metabolic consequences of the genetic modification cannot be excluded. So mm. they're just saying... It could get worse. It could get way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, uh, to add an addendum to your story, Great. I was with relatives this past week, and one works at a soybean processing plant. Mm -hmm. And I told him, I said, I've heard in mentioning the same guest mm -hmm. uh, that all soybeans grown in the U.S. were genetically modified. Mm -hmm. And he confirmed that, that that is true. Wow. I'm not surprised. So, and he, he is Mr. Soybean, so he confirmed that. So, anyway, wow. just to let you know. Great. Uh, can I do another Israel one here? Hit just me with some Israel. This is from a, a website called Analyst Network, Analyst slash Network, uh, taking data from reports in Israel. It says, mm -hmm. um, expectations high for conflict in 2010, increasing fears of chemical, biological weapons in the next conflict. You know, I know we have a lot of things like this, and sometimes they end up 
being false runs. Mm-hmm. But this was a story that seems legitimate, but it was outside the mainstream things. And I if it's something legitimate, I figured it's good for our people to know. There you go. It says Israel is providing her 4.5 million citizens with anti-weapons of mass destruction mask. Israeli Defense Minister Ehud Barak is expecting a war with Hezbollah and Iran by the end of next March. Um, I thought that's another sort of finite date, whether that means anything or not. Should I have had know. him on the prediction show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, the Israeli army fears that Hezbollah might launch missiles with biological and chemical warheads. Israel confirmed that its response would include uh, southern Lebanon, the suburbs of Beirut, Bekaa Valley, and the heart of the Gaza Strip. Next Wednesday and Thursday, uh, Israel will carry uh, the most extensive training exercise in its history. The aim is to prepare the country for the potential threat of biological and chemical warfare missiles, which her military and political experts fear Iran or Hezbollah might launch in the Jewish state, mm. or through a series of local terrorist attacks by weapons of mass destruction targeting Tel Aviv or other major Israeli cities. This is the Orange Flame is the name that was given to the campaign, according to an Israeli media agency. Training is expected to occur, cover Tel Aviv, Ramat Gan, and Holon. Uh, it will focus on procedures and tactics required to rescue those injured by biological and chemical weapons. Uh, and it says the Interior Front Command is working on distribution of these masks for the entire population. Uh, and then it's going to have hundreds of medical teams that are involved in it, involve all the vital ministries, public affairs, defense, interior. Um, and uh, it says hospitals in Tel Aviv and other regions like Ter Hashemar and Beersheba uh, will be involved uh, in portable clinics to, to receive more than a thousand volunteers uh, who supposedly will be hit with biological gases. Hopefully that's a simulation. Uh, uh, yeah, no According to the Israeli Haaretz newspaper, there will be three major centers in Tel Aviv to accommodate the injured. The House of Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, yeah. which I don't know if that's Danny Bonaducci from Partridge yeah, Family. That's or, what I was thinking. Uh, Ramat Gan Sports Stadium and the Halon Club. That would include thousands of citizens, uh, and on and on. Uh, it says Revire, our General Zeev Sanir, who is assigned to represent the IDF and supervising the exercises, said our first challenge will focus on containing the damages caused by terrorist attacks and biological or chemical attacks. Uh, and he says that uh, European dem- d- diplomatic reports have quoted Israeli high-ranking officials saying that the Netanyahu government and Israeli army are expecting an imminent war against their country waged jointly by Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas, uh, or by one of these bodies after next March. Uh, and then they said Israel may f- may find herself having no other option but to carry out a preemptive attack against Iran or Lebanon or the Gaza Strip, or all three together, if she feels any kind of danger threatening the safety of her citizens. Well, you know, if she feels it right now, why would that not justify just going on and doing the attack now with that reasoning? Well, I'm sure that that's people are thinking along those lines. Yeah. Let me just summarize a few points here. Okay. Haaretz, um, uh, Israeli da- daily newspaper, reported for years uh, is- Israeli authorities have been providing only 60% of the population with antibiological and chemical masks and um, certain exceptions for those in vulnerable and dangerous regions near Syria. Um, it says uh, they're... Uh, now getting them all particularly to people in densely populated areas uh, near Tel Aviv. Um, it says, uh, it's worth mentioning that Hezbollah's General Secretary Hassan Nasrallah has made it very clear in his last speeches that his missiles this time will reach Tel Aviv 
and beyond Tel Aviv, a blatant reference to Israel's nuclear reactors in the Negev Desert at Dimona. So they're going to go for the whole country this time. Um, it says in this case that the Israeli army will not hesitate for one moment to respond to these chemical attacks in village. It will strongly hit the bombing sources of the missiles with similar devastating weapons that could kill, injure, handicap, or disfigure thousands of citizens in southern Lebanon, Bekaa Valley, Beirut suburbs, the heart of the Gaza Strip. So it sounds like they would use similar WMDs yeah. against the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would be disastrous to all parties. Uh, it says that the uh, in case Israel strikes, Iran attacks Israel with long-range missiles with chemical and biological warheads, Israel will respond by devastating airstrikes and lethal, extremely advanced weapons to target the capital Tehran. So they're going into the population centers mm. and other major Iranian cities that are not equipped or trained to handle such a disastrous war like the Israeli cities are. Same argument that the Russians use, like, our people can handle a hit more than your people can handle a hit, basically. Um, what, a, what a weird thing to get into, like, a, a shouting match over. Our, pay, our people can handle a hit more than your can. Well, that's what the, that was a Cold War. That's what the Russians always, you know, they had all the underground things. They said, we can survive when the button's pushed. Yeah. That's bold. That's a bold proclamation. Right. And in conclusion here, uh, it says, uh, impending wars on the horizon because both Iranians and Syrians have been setting up tens of thousands of missiles in Lebanon and Syria, uh, as well as Iranian long-range missile bases. So, you know, to me, when they have that many missiles, even if you have this really hot-shot interception system, I don't see how you can get that many. Knock them out. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be a party. So, anyway, I thought that would yeah. pick, pick things up a little bit. Yeah. That's a good, happy one. Yeah. Anything else? <coughs> Other than that, gosh, they've already been hit with chemical and biological. <laughs> Help! Send a mask. Yeah. Send the anti-mask. You better go to the house of Danny. <clears throat> yeah. Or uh, what was the other one? I think it was the house of Danny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I got I've got one quick one here, and then maybe a little bit longer one, if that's okay. Or do you want to do you want me to just go one quick one? What do you What's your next one? Go with quick one. I'll, I'll get me a quick one in response since we're down to like the last five minutes. Okay. Gosh, I want I really wanted to get to the established. Well, never mind. Uh, Israel is developing an army of robotic fighting machines that offer a window onto the potential future of warfare. This is via the Wall Street Journal. Sixty years of near-constant war, a low tolerance for enduring casualties and conflicts, and its high-tech industry have long made Israel one of the world's leading innovators in military robotics. We're trying to get unmanned vehicles everywhere on the battlefield for each platoon in the field, says Lieutenant, Col- uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oren Barabi. Barabi? I don't know. That won't stump me. Head of the Israel Defense Forces Technology Branch. We can do more and more missions without putting a soldier at risk. In 10, or 10 to 15 years, one-third of Israel's military machines will be unmanned. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting thing. Predicts Gior Katz, Vice President of Rafael Advanced Defense System Limited, one of Israel's leading weapons manufacturers. We are moving into the robotic era. And that really struck me, you know, it's odd that here we have all the stuff, you know, the locusts that aren't locusts yeah. coming out of the abyss. I was just wondering if there was a biblical reference that would suggest more of those their presence. But yeah, well, that's the one that I thought of, obviously. Hmm. Particularly if they have heads with long hair coming off of them. Well, you that remember would be that. another sign. <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember seeing that, that that video of the um, 
that weird robot that sort of walks around like a horse. Thing's spooky looking. Yeah. yeah I mean, almost it, it looks creepy. Like, mm-hmm. is it the one that you can't hardly turn it over? Like they kick it. Yeah. And it would it would capture it, its balance. Yeah, and you and you it would slip on ice and and pull itself up. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it looks so real. It mm-hmm. was almost like some kind of creepy giant insect. Yeah, I know. And that just you know a lot of people. Thanks for like scaring me again with that. Now no, I'm thinking about that. I'm here for you. Okay. A lot of people speculate that that's kind of what those locusts are come out of the pit. I mean, I don't have to tell well, you. But. That would be pretty scary myself. Yeah. Except I don't think a robot would scare me as much as something like biologically bad. Yeah. You know, it's like be. that movie The Mist that I saw, which if you haven't seen it, you ought to see. Yeah. Okay, can I share something real quick? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. This one is like a, a paragraph, but I just want to give a call out to Sherry or Cherie, who is our, one of our faithful listeners who had sent me a link about from the Pravda about the sheep that was born with a human face. Did you see that? Oh. Yeah, it was in Pravda. Uh, yeah, I don't have it on here, but I have a picture of it I can show you. Yeah. And it looks like a real human face. Holy cow. Now, the only thing is, is that it spooked everybody in the village there. I'll bet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and this was in Turkey, a city in Turkey. Um, but what's sad is, is that uh, it says the mutant creature was hairless. Even dogs are afraid to approach the animal. But here's the thing that always makes you wonder. It says, the locals burnt the body of the little goat, and biologists had no chance to study the remutation. You could see people that almost looked like medical officials in the photo with, with you know, surgical gloves on handling it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was just somebody local or if it was just all a hoax. I don't know. Who knows? But I, I pre- appreciate you, Sherry, out there sending that to me. Yeah. And remind me in your email next time if it's Sherry or Sherry, because you've emailed for some time. So here was the real one, the the paragraph one. Oh. Uh, ben Stein calls Ron Paul anti-Semitic on Larry King. Oh, Did yeah, you I see heard that? that. Um, well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to bore you here. No, but, no, uh, go ahead. Yeah, Ron Paul appeared on Larry King Live on CNN with Ben Stein uh, and Sheila Jackson Lee to discuss the thwarted terrorist attack. Uh, when Paul gave his famous view that the attack was as much because we are over there, in other words, we have bases on mm-hmm. Muslim country soil, mm-hmm. which they don't like, Ben Stein called Paul anti-Semitic, which solicited demand of apology from Ron Paul. Uh, and he said it was a vicious attack. Um, and Ben Stein said the reaction was quite reminiscent of Rudy Giuliani's reaction during the first debate. So uh, he was supposed to have him back, but... You know, a lot of Christians really like Ben Stein because of that movie, movie. Expelled, he did. Mm -hmm. But I've seen him say stuff like this that was real apologetic for the establishment. He was a big buddy-buddy with Nixon, you know, a speechwriter. Well, yeah, he was a speechwriter, wasn't he? So I'm not surprised by any of that. So do you want to give a a quick word in one minute? I'll give the the, the one-sentence synopsis. Obama establishes Council of Governors via executive order. Synchronization and integration of state and federal military activities in the United States. Uh, now from the text of the executive order, the council shall convi- consist of ten state governors appointed by the president. Uh, and how many FEMA regions are there? Okay. Ten. Ten. There you go. Ten kings of the earth. Well, I, I wouldn't go, I mean, I don't know about that quite that far, but it is interesting. To yeah, see. I don't remember that in the Constitution as far no, as the form no. of yeah. government. Well, and here's the uh, here's the interesting thing. How much time do I have? we got to go. Okay, well, we'll get into it some other time. Okay, and we'll talk about the trees that they saw on Mars. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the trees they just took. I missed that It looks one. exactly like trees. It's right on Drudge. Wow. And some other places. And they're saying, oh, no, it's rubble that fell down, except it's pointing straight up in the air and looks exactly like trees. Wow. It looks like it's green. It looks like something Richard Hoagland would produce. <laughs>
Something else wow. Richard Hoagland's produced is our friend Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Let's get out. Okay, thank you so much for coming. Come back next week. We've got another great show next week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.